Welcome to episode 5 of Weekend at Crombies. This month, we shine a light on Too Late, The Hero. Welcome back to Weekend at Crombies, where we bring forgotten films back to the light. This is episode five. I am Hugh, jumping around like a frog with a bullet up its ass. And I am James, on the bed, with a glass of flavoured milk. <laughs> In separate rooms, we should add. Yes, <laughs> and of houses, course. And countries. <laughs> yeah, although what... what... What people do in the privacy of their own home is up to them. And, you know, it is 2018 after all, Absolutely. isn't it? Absolutely, yes. If people want to imagine us in a, a Morecambe and Wise-style double bed <laughs> <laughs> with a glass well, of flavoured milk and a podcast before us, then they mustn't. No, please don't. <laughs> please don't. I was thinking more um, Eric and Ernie. I said, I said Morecambe and Wise, just on first name terms with them. No, who were the characters from Sesame Street? Oh, Bert and Ernie. Bert and Ernie, that's... Because <laughs> Eric and Ernie are the... Yeah, oh, um, Morecambe and Wise. Yeah, they're Morecambe and Wise, yeah. Which one, is, it, which one is Eric, then? Not Eric, uh, which one is Bert? Which one is Bert? Bert's the, the guy with the really long face. I know that, Bert. I mean, which one of two of us are Bert? <laughs> oh, I see. I think you're Bert. I'm Bert. Yeah, because I think you're slightly more anal than me. And <laughs> that's a very justified use of the term. All good stuff on the cutting room floor. Excellent. <laughs> for our um, for our existing listener, I apologise. <laughs> To um, all other listeners who may be stumbling across Weekend at Crombies after a, a drunken night out as they load up iTunes and see the uh, the name of the, the podcast uh, flashing before them, um, it doesn't get any better. <laughs> For this evening's film, we will be looking at Too Late the Hero, a film made in 1970 by Robert Aldrich of Dirty Dozen fame, uh, starring Michael Caine and Cliff Robertson. Shall we jump right into the synopsis? Yeah, well, I should say this is our... This is the... the um, oldest film that we've chosen it is we've we've, uh, we've leapt outside the bounds of our lifetime as sam beckett we, never could <laughs> well yes so we wait to see whether age is a good marker of quality or not i've always found so as i get older <laughs> yeah, yeah increasingly so i find <laughs> we begin um so it's a it's a war movie um it's it's the uh south pacific in 1942 so there is a war going on and we begin with kind of a rousing fanfare and a Union Jack flag flying across the cover, um, which is quickly followed by an American Stars and Stripes flag and then a Japanese Imperial flag. Um, And as the credits roll on, um, these three flags flying majestically in the breeze get increasingly more tattered and weather-beaten. And in the end, um, it ends the opening synopsis with just three indiscriminate rags of completely bleached out colour. You can't tell one from the other. And I think that's probably your first cue that this isn't your regular war movie. No, it's it you're right. It, it's it's a war movie. Well, it ha- it has a lot of the tropes of war movies, which we'll probably come on to, but it, it is a slightly unusual setting and it's a slightly unusual story I think in that context as well. Yeah. So, uh we begin on a South Pacific island, um and essentially our uh, one of our main protagonists, Lieutenant Sam Lawson, played by Cliff Robertson, is quite happily sunning himself on the beach. He's a, he's an intelligence officer, so he isn't actually in the front line. And he gets called to the, his commanding officer's office, played by Henry Fonda. Um, Henry Fonda, yeah, in an extended cameo. 
and he's uh, he's very much a, a straight down the line thing. We 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 actually see again Lieutenant Lawson is a bit of a skyver. He's again he was he was sunning himself on the beach. He kind of moses yeah he having a beer. He moses into yeah. um into his uh, the colonel's office and basically says yeah I'll, I'll do what you say but I'm going on holiday tomorrow. Don't you get in the way of my leave? Um, yeah, because he's scheduled to to go home, isn't he, the next day? Yeah. I mean I've got to say this war looks fantastic at this point. <laughs> he's, he's having South a Pacific beach. He's laying there, you know. Uh, just got his shorts on, beer in hand. He's about to get some food. I'm thinking, oof, what? You know, I've heard a lot about the Second World War, but it don't look that bad. <laughs> in fact, as the uh, the MPs grab him up and drive him by jeep to the commanding officer's um, place, they drive through all this tropical paradise. There's a kind of a, a, a in the shop um, site of kind of these Polynesian ladies bathing in the in the water, and it's shown very quickly. There's nothing uh, particularly graphic other than the soldiers wolf whistling, but yeah. that is the only female characters in the entire movie. Yeah. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, it, they, the, the, the Polynesian women um, frolicking in the water, and it's—it's it, it's what a three-second scene, maybe. Yeah, that's yeah. it. No other women. That's it. So uh, Lieutenant Lawson is being told by um, by Henry Fonda that basically well, I've got a mission for you, and now he he suddenly um, pricks his up, thinking, "Oh, I'm not going on leave. I'm being sent somewhere." And in fact, he's told you're being sent to a combat unit, and his words are, "Combat? What do you mean? What is that?" <laughs> Uh, so he's not keen to go on this mission. He's been told he's being going to be flown out immediately to go to an island called the New Hebrides to join a British um, attack patrol um, because they've requested a Japanese speaker. And Lieutenant Lawson's um, he is a Japanese interpreter. He's um, he I think listens on the wireless and and um, interprets what he hears. And in well, fact, I sorry, I can't imagine him doing any of that. Uh, um, <laughs> look, looking at him. I can't imagine that he's had any kind of gumption to go and study at all. Uh, to find out that he's fluent in Japanese, and as the film goes on, we obviously we hear some of his, Jap- his Japanese as well, and it, it's quite extraordinary. This this was one thing I made a note about: is is how educated is he? Because it's not it's 1940s. He I, he had apparently joined the army as a Japanese speaker. He, he makes explicit: I joined because I knew I'd get promoted because I spoke Japanese and I'd get an easy life. Yeah. So yeah. he clearly came in as a fluent Japanese speaker. Yeah. Uh, where do you get that education? Because I'm guessing then Lawson is not just a, a Joe off the street. Um, he's not no. kind of working class. He must have some kind of educated background, some kind of travelled background. Yeah. Which yeah. Or is... he's had the opportunity to explore the world and yeah. to gain that, that language skill. Yeah. Because otherwise, you know, he, he looks like a bum. Yeah. Which again to start is, with anyway. Yeah. Which again is um, an interesting point and might play in later to the film in the fact there is a class difference that's not immediately apparent with, with Lawson and all the other characters. So he moans a lot. He kind of he he says he doesn't want to do it. He says, um, "Well, I'll just resign my commission." And then Henry Fonda says, "Well, you can go out there as a private. You're still going." Um, so after and after getting yelled at a lot, because basically Henry Fonda, who was again the commanding officer, he actually actually write letters home from people who actually died and to their parents. He gets a bit sick of this. Yells at um, at Lawson. Kind of nails home the point that Lawson is a skyver who doesn't care about anything. There's tougher jobs than he's got to do. And he's got to knuckle down and do it. And he's sent on a plane, which transfers to another plane. Kind of there's a little sequence of him going from. PT boat to plane to plane whatever yeah. until he ends up on this island of New Hebrides, um, and this this little sequence goes on for about ten minutes. This is when he gets he gets found, he gets interviewed, he we find out with his character, he gets flown away, and I noticed it's at the end of this ten minutes the credits the finally credits. stop. Yes, the credits <laughs> finally stop rolling. Yeah, I I actually looked uh, when I watched it uh, <laughs> on the DVD. I looked at the time thinking how 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 many people were involved in this film? Yeah. It was eleven minutes and fifty eight yeah. seconds before I, the credits finished. I did the same thing because when when you're, when you're ten minutes in and the credits flash up, you have to check. Yeah. Yeah, it was like there were two parts to the credits. There was the first bit, and then there was a, like yeah. a scene, and then the credits started yeah. again. 
Well, it was kind of like a cold open, and that way it was interesting how they did it, because if they got to do all those credits, that's one way of doing it, because the, the, yes. they put the credits in a kind of a transitional scene, when he goes yeah. from his jeep to his plane to his boat, and in fact, that's the last kind of journey part of the movie, because the rest of the movie is entirely on this claustrophobic island, mm. um, and it never goes away again since. So again, then, Lawson is, is dumped on the, um, the island, where he's collected by the British unit now, who are mostly a Scots brigade, um, who've uh, with, um, made up entirely of basically British character actors. <laughs> they're a, they're a ripe bunch as well. I mean, it has to be said they are they are exactly what you expect a bunch of British soldiers, ragtag British soldiers to look and sound like. I think. Yeah, it, it pulls no punches again in the kind of the tropical event. The the you know there's it's it's sweaty, it's dusty, people are slouching around yeah. in kind of an unkempt kit and. Um, sunburnt shoulders and dragging big you know, slop buckets everywhere and this kind of stuff. Um, it's it's quiggly down under <laughs> levels of stereotype. <laughs> well, again, we'll come into this later. We definitely will come to this later. But if you look at the kind of the camp, it has much more of sort of um, a GI camp in Vietnam than it does yeah. a British camp. It has that, that impermanence. It's, it's a couple of bits of barbed wire and, and sandbags and the kind of the, the latrine, the freshly dug latrines and people marching around. But it doesn't have any sense of a base. It's just where there happens to be ramshackle, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, um, yeah. It, it's quite grimy and grubby as well. It, it doesn't, it doesn't look, it doesn't look well thought out, yeah. really. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it doesn't look like a particularly pleasant place to be, yeah. and it looks very sweaty yeah. and clammy, uh, and it, it represents that quite well, I think. And in fact, as we, we learn, this is not a kind of a, a regular battalion. It's made up of no. kind of refugees from the evacuation of Singapore, all patched together and this kind of stuff. Um, so it, it is. Not cohesive in that sense either. But um, as Lawson is being escorted to that, we get our view of basically most of the enlisted men of the story, of which is our other protagonist, uh, Michael Caine, playing Private Tosh Hearn. He's having a bit of a cockroach race with uh, with some of his comrades. They do a good job of establishing who the characters are pretty quickly. Hearn yes, is... it's a short scene, actually, yeah. when, when he arrives, when Lawson arrives, to establishing effectively who the main characters are. It can only be a can be five or so minutes. Yeah. And in those five minutes, you get a real sense of the the interplay and the connection between the characters. And really, you, you know already who they are yeah. and what kind of character they are. Yeah, it's, it's a, they show the pecking order of who's you know who's on top dog and who's not, who does what. So uh, Michael Caine is cheating with his cockroach because he's, he's shoving a, a flitted uh, light cigarette in it to make it go faster. Um, yeah. One of the other men who's lower down the pecking order is yelling that it's not fair um, and no one seems to care about this because Michael Caine is clearly higher up in the pecking order. I well, think that's Private Jock Thornton. Um, no, no, Private Jock oh, no, Thornton. Oh no, no, it's not. It's a fat. No, it's not. It's Campbell, isn't it? It's, it's Connolly. Oh, sorry. sorry yes, yeah, no, yeah, Campbell is is character actor number one, Ronald Fraser. Um, he is yeah. Private Campbell, uh, which we will come to later because he is probably the worst character in the entire movie. And by um, worse, he's he's just a he's a he's just not a nice character, is he? Yeah, no, he's he's yeah he's very very unpleasant, and um, uh, as we will discover, um. And then again, we have uh, another character, Lance Percival as Corporal McLean, who's kind of keeping order. And then the Ian Madden, who is Jock Thornton, is the one who comes in and, and yeah. stewards inquiry by smashing up all the cockroaches and ending the game <laughs> there and then. Because as we learned, he's, his brains are a bit rattled by either combat fatigue or the sun. So he is, yeah. whilst characterful and fairly tough, is, um, is certainly not in his right mind um, and can he do plays, what he likes. He plays the equivalent of the dumb, silent elf in Santa Claus the movie. <laughs> Who everyone kind of bullies and picks on, but quite like as well. 
Of Jock Thornton. Yeah, is that, I got that right. No, no, no. You're thinking of Connolly, the uh, the one, the one, who's, <laughs> the one who's yelling. It's uh, there's a lot of Scots names, a lot of character actors, so you're forgiven. Now, Jock Thornton is Ian Banner, one, the one who is actually a bit loopy and. Um, oh yes, you're right. He's one who's singing. He's singing. He's um. Everyone's everyone's okay with him because he seems to be kind of pally, but also everyone's slightly aware that he could go nuts at any point. Yeah, and they're all bright orange, which is <laughs> yes. why I'm slightly, getting slightly confused. <laughs> this is something I've always thought about war movies: is the um. The kind of the the quick cues you have when you're watching an ensemble movie is you know you look for gender and you look for race and you look for age and you look for yeah. facial hair. It's terrible in World War Two movies because everyone's pretty much the same race, the same age, the same gender, clean shaven yeah. in the same clothes, and you have to immediately yeah. get who's who. Um, <laughs> yeah, which true. is why I thought as, was, yeah. as, as is evident, I'm struggling. Yeah, yeah, which is <laughs> which is why I think it's really good they had so many character actors in there because I, I'm te- I'm basically taking my cues from oh I know him, he's that guy. Oh I know him, he's that guy. So we'll often yes. probably refer to people as the Michael Caine role did this. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, so that the that the enlisted men are are introduced and we learn pretty much these are the guys who are going into the jungle um, escorting Captain uh, Lieutenant Lawson, who's got a mission to do as well. He goes for his briefing with the Colonel of the um, the regiment, another character. He doesn't know he doesn't know why he's there yet. He just knows that he's going to have to support and help the Limeys yeah. deliver a, a a task which will help the 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 U.S. Army, but he doesn't know what it will be. Yeah, and actually, it's um, we, it's this funniest introduction. You mentioned it was a grubby, nasty base. He turns up in kind of a dress uniform with aviators and yeah, a fag in his mouth, and he just yeah. looks completely out of place. They refer to him as Snow White because he looks so pristine <laughs> and uh, and out of place. Um, <laughs> But yeah, he's briefed by by Harry Andrews, the Colonel, another um, Colonel Thompson, so another um, a character actor who does actually a really good job of playing this. He's playing the, the quintessential Colonel. He's slightly eccentric, um, completely unflappable, and and just musing about them. The situation essentially is: there's a little island in the Pacific. The British are at one corner of it, the south corner. The Japanese are in the north corner, and every now and again they patrol up and down and kill each other. Um, but no one can really stalemate further than. Than that, yeah. They, uh, there's, there's and between a... the two, between the two is a, is a is a quite a dense jungle. Yeah, yeah. Protecting each from each other. Yeah. So it's it's kind of like a trench warfare. It's like it's like World War One. Yeah. No one's going anywhere, and if you try, you get killed. But they must try because uh, an American convoy will be passing by the, uh, the Japanese end of the island in two days' time. So if the Japanese see it, they'll radio for support, and this convoy will be destroyed. So this British unit must. Um, so about a dozen of them, they will go up into the jungle destroy the radio so it can't be reported and Lieutenant Lawson's role is as a Japanese speaker he will transmit on the British radio an all clear signal the Japanese will possibly pick up and think all's clear and, and as, a, as a setup that is quite simple and straightforward mm. but it's understandable and it makes sense and I quite like that. It's a very, it's a very straightforward setup, but it, it's dealt with quite quickly, and that you know where you are. Then this is what the film's going to do as a consequence of that. Yeah. In terms of plot, plot development, plot movement. Yeah, and I guess a bit later I'll talk about it. Yeah, it's a nice visual storytelling. You know, yeah, for for a war movie that goes through an impenetrable jungle, you know exactly where they are and what they're supposed to be doing, yeah. and it's 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 laid out quite nice like that. And yeah, you're right. It's not like, like for example, I'm looking at thinking about um. Aldrich's other film, The Dirty Dozen. I can't strictly remember what the mission was. No, they had to kill Germans, yeah. but I wasn't. I think either they were top-ranking Germans or they were scientists. Or there was something. Again, they they, they yeah. tend to escalate that problem too much, where it's like, oh, well, these guys will form the Fourth Reich, and if you don't stop them, the world will end. Yeah, here too much, isn't it? Yeah, here is. There's yeah. a convoy. Destroy the radio, and you win. Um, it's nice and simple. It's understandable. It's it's localized and contained. And yeah. so, what it enables you to do is to build on a lot of the characters. You yeah, understand a little yeah. more about the characters. You're right. I mean, you know, the, the idea that a Second World War film would be about killing Nazis is kind of, because surely that was the point of the Second World War, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, 
if that if that's the plot, that's pretty broad. <laughs> Indeed, but again, because it's it's simple, it allows you to add on stuff beyond that. The mission is not what you have to really concentrate on. So he's he's introduced. He's given some British kit, which um, is described as a wee bit manky. Nice Scottish accent you did there. It's a wee bit manky. There'll be more Scottish accents. Well, obviously, you'd uh, been stationed in Germany for a while as well. <laughs> this kit is not acceptable. <laughs> Got a million of these. <laughs> After he, so he, um, whilst um, Lawson is being briefed by the colonel, he meets the captain who will be leading the mission. I'm going to say character actor again is Denham Elliott, is uh, Captain yeah. Hornsby. Hornsby. I have to say, this is, I mean, obviously uh, everyone knows Denham Elliott from Raiders of the Lost Ark yeah. and uh, the Indiana Jones movies. Uh, and I have to admit, I've only ever seen him in one other film, and it's this one. <laughs> uh, it's this and the Indiana Jones films and a couple of TV programs. Yeah. Yeah, I think I must have seen him in other films, but I don't recall them. I think that's the thing no. about character actor, they just crop up and you think, oh, it's that guy, and then. Yeah, and they fade away again. Again, um, again, Cliff Robertson will come to the actors again. He was, well, he was Oscar-winning, but probably be remembered now as the uncle of Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, late, late career resurgence he had, didn't he? Yeah, but again, he won, he won the, he won an Oscar for the film he did before this, but uh, but couldn't attend because he was in the jungle filming Too Late the Hero. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, and he, in that film he played a, um, didn't play a, a, a disabled man or something with special powers. Anyway, this isn't, this isn't we. <laughs> I can't even, it's called Charlie or something. Charlie, yeah, we can digress. Charlie. This is Weekend at Crombies. But you're right, he did, he did. Um, as people who viewed Tropic Thunder will know, that there was a certain way to win an Oscar, and Cliff Robertson <laughs> took that route. Yep. He plays he plays a man with learning difficulties who becomes intelligent and then loses that intelligence. So he kind of has that. It's, it's based on Flowers for Algernon. Yeah, that's it. But yeah, so he, um, he won the Oscar but couldn't claim it. Um, I think because the director wouldn't let him go, but, you know, otherwise we wouldn't have had Too Late the Hero. And uh, Who would choose an Oscar over a film that no one remembers? <laughs> Well, well, Cliff Robertson's loss is the the world's gain. Absolutely. Plus, I don't think Charlie was a very good film. <laughs> no, but you know, all of those early Oscar winners—they're all rubbish, aren't they? Really. <laughs> yeah, only gets decent from about 1975. Oh, was that when Star Wars won it? <laughs> <laughs> Where were we? So we, uh, with Denham Elliott is Captain Hornsby. He's led in. He again is is pretty much what you'd expect from a, a British Army captain of a certain class. He's a uh, Terribly polite and, uh, and, and 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 ever so keen to get stuck into the Japs. He doesn't have the best of introductions to Lawson, who kind of shakes his hand and goes, "I guess we have to go then, don't we?" Yeah, yeah. Well, this is because yeah, he's given thirty minutes yeah. from arriving at the base <laughs> to um, leaving on this what looks like it's going to be a, an almost suicide mission. Yeah. And so Lawson is sitting there thinking, what have I got myself into here? 30 minutes. Yeah. And um, he says, basically, it's best not to best not to let them think about it too much. Don't let, <laughs> it doesn't do to let the men brood on such things. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> but yeah, so, uh, so he's not happy. He's actually going to get changed into some manky clothes that aren't his. Yeah. Go find a machine gun. He's only gun. bought a three-piece suit with him. Yeah, find a gun and go. Um so there, we're, but there, yeah, so, um, yeah, so Hornsby's very, very enthusiastic. Um, he probably only just come off the sick list, because he's a bit sweaty, and, and you do wonder about him. But anyway, so we have our briefing, where we, again, because the men are being briefed, we, the audience, also being briefed, so it's very efficient. Um, 
we also learn that the men aren't particularly paying attention. And, oh, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, Hearn raises the, uh, the inquiry, oh, should something happen to the, uh, the nice lieutenant, will the mission be scrubbed? Which raises two things that I'm sure Lawson wasn't happy about. One, that the men are thinking about him dying and going home. Yeah. And the other thing is, he learns he's not actually critical to the mission, which seems even more pointless than just saying, oh, no, we don't really need to send a false code. It's just a way of getting extra time. Yeah. Um, so now Lieutenant Lawson is going on this mission that he doesn't even need to be on. Um, and the men are sort and, of, and, yeah. and it is it is a, it is effectively a suicide mission as well. But, I mean, yeah, oh, yeah, they said we've never gone this far before, and everyone's yeah. muttering, "Oh, it's a suicide mission." Yeah, I mean that's great, isn't it? Given that he was basically going on his annual leave about forty minutes beforehand, <laughs> I'd be pretty annoyed to be honest. If first he does look pretty annoyed. <laughs> yeah, he does annoyed well. Yeah. So the men are assembled. There's a dozen of them plus two officers. We have fourteen men, which I think is the same number that the dirty dozen were when you uh, yeah you count them all up. Um, other characters again. There's the, there's a sergeant of um, Sergeant uh, Johnson who is your, your typical snarling sergeant. He doesn't like Campbell. Um, we can come back to Campbell. Campbell is a malinger as well. He's a he's he's got a broken arm. He's got a bad arm. He keeps holding up every time he wants to avoid doing anything. Um, yeah. And the sergeant kind of says, "You're coming on this mission, laddie, because I made you." Um, so that that pays off a little bit later. But anyway, so we have there's a usual collection of uh, kind of a few tough guys, a few I don't want to be here, and just regular cannon fodder. Uh, just going back to, yeah. to, to Campbell again. I mean, I'm, you know, not to discriminate against um, people of a, a certain girth, um, but I mean, I, I'm teetering on the brink of joining that group. But he is—he's a welfare a, lad. Yeah, he is. He is, and he's got—he's got one of those weaselly faces as well. He's just everything about him is immediately—you you hate everything about him. <laughs> well, you don't hate it, but you know he's—you know he's no good. Yeah, and I think yeah, um, it's not so much that he's quite heavy set more than anything else, but his face is much larger than it needs to be. He's got Jowl. a big round face, and his, his, his eyes, and yeah, he's got a small eyes and small nose. Uh, with with uh, yeah. the greatest apologies to Ronald Fraser, who does a good turning character roles. Uh, he does yeah. look, he does, he does look exactly like you, because Campbell is the skyver, the um, the, the weasel, yeah, the uh, yeah. the unpleasant character. And we should actually mention here. So as they're preparing to lead off, suddenly we hear the bells ringing and all yeah. the, the weapons crews manning their stations because. Across the open field, which leads to the jungle, um, a patrol of men are running back across. So a patrol of British people uh, are returning and running like hell to get across this field. So they've um, obviously been in the jungle on some task, and they've got made their way back to the edge of the jungle and have to. I mean, it looks like it's maybe a kilometre that they have to run from yeah. the edge of the jungle yeah. to the to the base itself. Yeah. And of course, it's wide open fields, yeah. and so they are completely exposed to Japanese snipers and riflemen that are sitting hidden in the edge of in the edge of the jungle as well so they're kind of sitting ducks effectively yeah. as they're running back i mean to be honest the kilometer would kill me rather i wouldn't need the, the, <laughs> the sniper shooting at me just make me run a kilometer but th- this is the thing so the, the, the music ramps up and we see about half a dozen men running like hell a zigzagging because they want to avoid the enemy fire like hell across this open field and a couple about half of them get shot and die um, and the sort of the remaining three stagger across exhausted, you know, wheezing that it was what a, it was a terrible shambles, an absolute mess, and this kind of stuff. So this is our setup. This is the stakes already. Is that when you know this this open patch of field is a bit of a killing ground, and in fact, machine guns and these mortars of the British are firing back and kind of deterring the Japanese or killing them. But there's certainly it's shown that to cross this end of enemy fire is suicide. Yeah. Um, which yeah. is important to remember later on. It's a, it's a nice moment to, to, uh, to reiterate what the stakes are. But that's all gone now, so the Japanese have fallen back into the jungle, and now it's time for our patrol to go across. So they, they start to, to head across um, in little um, in groups to, to reach the edge of the jungle. I think it's the first time yeah, that Hearn 
starts to niggle Lawson. Nothing in particular, it's more a case of, let's just jibe the new guy. Yeah. Because Lawson just makes a comment like, spread out, don't move up, and he goes, oh, he, he knows what he's doing, doesn't he? He's done this before. <laughs> it's quite a tense scene as well, actually, because yeah, you've obviously just had what, you've had the, the aftermath of the, 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 the previous um, group running back into the camp. You, you see them they walk out to the jungle, knowing that there could be Japanese soldiers. And walk, really- walking past the dead bodies as they do so. Yeah, so it's quite it's quite a tense scene. It's probably the first point in the film where there is a sense of dread and a sense yeah. of edginess, as it were. And I think that's sold in the music and again the reactions because when they reach the edge of the jungle, there is a palpable few. So yeah, it's that we've reached the belly of the beast. You know, we've, we've overcome yeah. the first hurdle, and so off they go into the jungle. It's not long before they encounter their second hurdle, which is a Japanese patrol coming towards them. At which point. Um, Hornsby orders them to scatter either side and they basically wait for these this patrol to come between them, whereupon they open fire and decimate them. Um, but they're very quick to open fire here as well, because there were, I didn't think there was any necessity to do that. I mean, it, it was the World War Two. I think you're allowed to start shooting when you want to. Oh, yeah, but no, yes, I, I get that. And I, I'm not disputing the fact that they may have wanted to do that. But th- there's a few points in the film where I can think, just keep quiet and everything will be okay, all right. Yeah, yeah. And then almost within within seconds, they're like, oh, come on, let's do yeah. this. Well, that's an interesting point, because, yeah, had they sort of let that and taken them prisoner, what happened next might have been averted. Because even though five Japanese soldiers are gunned down, three of the patrol are shot as well. Two are killed yeah. instantly. Um, because, as they mention later on, that the men are grousing, and, and um, Hearn makes this clear, is that Hornsby set them up so stupidly that half of them shot the other half. Um, yeah. So, again, so two people we don't know are killed in the thing, but um, the third one was Connolly, who was actually the guy who was being cheated out of this cockroach race and was being yeah. jibed by Hearn. There's clearly, a, um, even though he's being cheated, Hearn seemed to have a kind of um, paternal or at least... Um, uncle-like figure to this, this younger, more naive soldier, because he was talking about your Uncle Tosh won't be able to look after you, and now he's been shot through the, the chest and is, is bleeding out. And, um, I don't know if we've mentioned that Hearn is the, the medical officer he is. as well. Yeah. So he, 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 can't be he, has, a... he, has, he has a role to play within that particular team, which is quite a, which is quite a paternal role, actually, yeah. in, in, in that process as well. It's actually, again, it's a very good role to give this character, because it, again, it forces him to be involved in everything, um, because yeah. he has to. It also gives him an authority over Again, the officers, because if they say, is this man fit to go on? Is this man to survive? They have to ask Hearn, and Hearn can say yes or no, which yeah. which gives him a power that, again, a private doesn't normally have over a captain. And Hearn is a very strong character anyway. He will just say it out loud. And actually, he, at this point, he yells at, at, um, at Denham Elliott that Connolly is wounded because Denham Elliott is, is blithering about something, and, and Hearn just snaps and then recovers himself very quickly. But he is, he's, again, he's trying to comfort Connolly, who's clearly about to die. And... Again, this is the point where, where the captain, Hornsby, asks her about the wounded Japanese soldiers. Can they make it? And her checks them out and says, well, one will be okay if we can get back to the base. And Hornsby then says, we're not going back to the base, and then yeah. executes them then and there. Yeah. Which is portrayed as a very cold-blooded moment, but in fairness... To it's get, logical. It, well, you, you can't see what else they could have done. If they just scrap no. the mission and start carrying wounded people back, or they have exactly. to... Yeah, so it's, it's not nice, and it's portrayed as not a nice thing, but it is... It kind of at that call, you're not completely thinking Hornsby's a monster. Although they do mention later, because actually they mention um, a couple of the more the experienced soldiers tell some of the more inexperienced ones this was Hornsby's fault. He set us up so we shot each other. And in fact, to to ambush someone and lose like a quarter of your strength is is appalling. Especially as you didn't need to, as you said, they could have just either let them walk past or yeah. taken them prisoner or just not shot each other. Um, just not shot each other, I think, yeah. would have been the most sensible option. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And in fact, to go with the, with the, the Hornsby step, um, as, as Connolly is, is dying and is kind of, you know, in the arms of his friends, Hornsby comes along and does his, his best, or rather his level worst to comfort him. He's like, I, I hear you're something of a footballer. We'll get you back on the pitch. Um, and, and literally, um, Hearn and, and, Hearn the, and, and Corporal McLean. It's, it's Hearn and it's another one, the Corporal McLean. They both look at him and he gets the message very quickly and, yeah. and goes. And then, of course, Connolly dies. And I think that's, that's one of the first, Chimps in the armor of again her and the other patrols is that you know a, a one of their friends has died and and yeah. it's and it wasn't their fault so we we carry on through the jungle now slightly denuded um and we again encounter more Japanese in this case it's the sergeant who's who's um he gets wounded in the leg and chases off chases off one he kills one Japanese and chases off another one so yeah, now he's, he's too injured to carry on then as a consequence of that yeah um so now they've got to leave the sergeant behind with the promise they'll find him on their way home and yeah. he's got to make the best of it. And actually, speaking of character moments, this, I thought, was a very nicely played out one, because he, the sergeant, as he's being left behind, is sort of spoken to by three of the characters of the, of the patrol, and it tells you a lot about them. Hornsby, again, makes a, a terrible mess of it. He just goes, good luck, and then and doesn't yeah. know what else to say to his sergeant. <laughs> die. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, because you'd imagine he'd have a quite close relationship with the man who's running the platoon for him, and all he can say is, well, good luck, best of luck. Um, yeah, yeah. Hearn is the one again who is behaving like a human being to him. He he, you know, he apart from being the medical guy and treating him, he he kind of comforts him as in saying, you know, he gives him a pack of cigarettes because he hasn't got any, um, and and plays into the illusion that they'll meet again. You come back like you owe me for those. You give me back those. In a kind of like I'm not leaving them here to die. We'll see each other again, even though they both know they probably won't. And he kind of gives a pat on the leg and, and sees him to it. And then Campbell is the last one to see him and just gives this nasty little grin saying, oh, enjoy your rest, Sergeant. <laughs> and you just say, Campbell, you're a scumbag. <laughs> yeah. And he obviously he notices almost immediately that, that Hearn has given him a packet of cigarettes. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so they, they then um, they, they move off, don't they? And it's within about 20 seconds. Yeah. You, you, you hear him, you hear, you hear the sergeant screaming, top of his voice. Which is impressive because uh, he had his throat cut. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, is, yeah. And then he'll go back and find out he's had his throat cut. So within, within, I don't know, they must have been on the move literally <laughs> seconds. They must have, you know, 20 yards. But they were screaming. Where they left him, yeah. suddenly the, the Japanese, the Japanese soldier appears out of nowhere, slits his throat, then merges back into the jungle. So again, so again, they're now down another man. And this is, this is the first moment when Lawson and Hearn are sent to work together as, as a team. Mm. And those two, and indeed Campbell, are sent back to again, check out what's happened. And while Campbell is left to look after the sergeant, collect his dog tags, in fact, Campbell then takes his opportunity to, to loot the dead and take his cigarettes and everything. <laughs> yeah. It's it's Lawson and Hearn who who go out looking for this Japanese officer. And Lawson, again, uses Japanese, which we find out is pretty good because he says something that brings the Japanese officer out of the jungle, whether it's surrender and will be nice to you, or whether he was actually impersonating a Japanese soldier saying, you know, it's all safe to come out. The Japanese officer comes out and then gets gunned down by Hearn. I, I, would, I would go further than it's very good, Hugh. <laughs> I would go as far as to suggest. Now, I I don't know whether this is true or not, and I would certainly not want to slur the memory of Robert Aldrich in creating uh, a, a sense of realism. But I would maybe go as far as to say that a Japanese man had recorded the words that Lawson had said, and then that was played over the film at a later date. Because not only was it very good Japanese, it was astonishing Japanese. <laughs> and he almost changed his vocal cords to be able to deliver the the scene that he did. It was I mean you obviously don't see him speaking, you see him in the undergrowth and he shouts the Japanese sentence yeah. or the Japanese word. And it, it it I can't believe that came out of his mouth. 
because it's there's no accent. It's pure. It's pure Japanese. I hope you're not insinuating that Cliff Robertson, Academy <laughs> Award winner of Charlie, could not impersonate a Japanese accent if he needed to. I'm sure he can impersonate, but man alive, that wasn't an impersonation. Yeah. That was Japanese. Yeah. Uh, so again, he, he uses his special ability, which, which brings the guy out, and he gets special shot down. Ability, special powers. Special powers. <laughs> His special linguistic powers, um, which gets him shot, which again um, leads to the the rather nice uh, comment from uh, Michael Caine saying, "It's not every day you get to kill an officer, is it, Lieutenant?" Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but they, they, it does show actually these two work together quite well. You know, one of them went to yeah, one of them covered, and it does show actually that Lawson isn't a complete buffoon. He's not, um, even though he doesn't want to be here, he knew you know to keep quiet in the jungle, to walk yeah. softly, to he uses hand signals. He's actually behaving semi competently in the, in this situation. Which again, and he's making he's making useful choices. He's making decisions that are actually proven to be useful for the group as well. Yeah. So again, they go light one sergeant, and they leave. They leave again. They leave Campbell. Um, he's he's known as the back marker, which I imagine is some military formation. Um, but he's basically the guy that loots the bodies. Because having looted the sergeant, he now goes and loots the Japanese officer um, yeah. to the yeah. point of hacking off the, his valuable ring that he's got. So yeah, so Campbell, Campbell now laid him down with loot. Actually, yeah, doesn't he hack his his hand off? He, he chops his finger off to get the, the ring. Yeah, that's um, yeah. With, with his big yeah. old machete that I think he only ever uses yeah. for chopping things off. Um, yeah, like, uh, yeah, his big old machete chopping very delicate things off like a finger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the uh, the jungle vegetation survives, but the uh, the fingers <laughs> don't. But they they continue again. The, and we'll say with the musical cues here. There's a uh, the, this soundtrack basically has three musical cues. One is it's getting tense. One is action is happening. <laughs> And one is, yeah. it's quite bathos, um, and, and yeah. that's an ironic moment we're having. And for most of this journey into the jungle, it's the tension music. It's da da da, and then we, they carry yeah. on. Um, they lose another man who steps on a landmine, so they're now... Oh, yeah, they're, yeah. So, and I think this, this again triggers something else in Lawson, because the, even though the others were lost to sort of enemy action, to, to just die like this seems to get Lawson even bluer, because they when they have their rest stop in this um, abandoned temple, Lawson starts musing about, you know, that kid... Rogers, that kid Rogers, I think he had time to get laid or whatever. And then, yeah. Dan Elliott has, yeah, has the one like, response, yeah. not really my department, old boy. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's when Lawson articulates and like, I'm, I'm, you know, I've messed my life up, but I am not going out like one of these kids. I'm, I'm not yeah. going to die for a stupid reason. Yeah, he's going to get laid. <laughs> I think if, <laughs> he, he, if, he, if, he, if he couldn't manage to do it on that island where he was selling himself, then he never will. Yeah, with the, with, the, with the Pacific Islander ladies bathing themselves. He's not. Semi-poo. He's not going to get as much improvement on the you know, the island with lots of sweaty Scottishmen. <laughs> well, you never know. Needs must, I suppose. <laughs> Any port in <laughs> <the> storm. Yeah. <laughs> but again, so um, the men's morale we said at this point is not great. Apart from you know losing half the number already and and halfway up the jungle and feeling very terrified. And it's this moment when Hearn spots a packet of bloodstained cigarettes that the Campbells looted from him and. Couldn't recognise it as the, the cigarettes he gave to the sergeant that end up in Campbell's possession, and a fight breaks out basically. And so Hornsby comes in to break the fight up, and when everyone has the good sense to to not answer back, Hearn just loses it and yeah. and literally just lets rip into Hornsby about what an idiot he is, what, how they shouldn't be here, it's a complete waste of time, and basically manages to talk himself into getting arrested in the middle of the mission. <laughs> yeah, but the, the thing the thing about the thing about Hornsby though is that. I, I kind of feel sorry for him at this point because he's a bit bit of an incompetent. He's a bit of a drip, yeah. I suppose. But I don't think it's been that clear that he's been totally incompetent. I think he's he's trying. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right. I think not great. 
Yeah, this is one of the virtues of the film because again, well, we'll come with Campbell. Campbell's awful, and Hornsby yeah. is pretty bad. But there, uh, and there is no character who is completely beyond redemption. We'll come to Campbell when, later on when he gets at his worst. Yeah. But Hornsby, he does come across. He's a he's a bad officer, but he's not a bad person. And no, he, he genuinely no. wants to do a good job. He doesn't really know how to lead the men, but he wants to. He... And that, I think that's the issue. He doesn't know how to, and so because he doesn't know how to, his attempts at soothing or comforting his dying soldiers yeah. fall flat because he's just he just doesn't know what to do yeah he's, he's not, not yeah he's not cold he's not, to them he's, he yeah he's not cold to them and like oh god one's dead he just he doesn't know yeah, how to how to talk to them and in fact he is the only person he's tried to befriend is lawson who has been brushing him off at every occasion like he's tried to talk about their home lives and lawson yeah. brushes him off he's actually when lawson says did rogers get laid or whatever hornsby you know tries to say well i'm sure you'll be brave and Lawson goes, no, I won't. And he goes, no, but I'm sure the, 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 when the chemistry you'll be brave. He goes, no, I won't. Uh, and I think yeah. and that leads right into the next argument with her. And so clearly Hornsby is a bit riled up anyway, because yeah. partly this this expert who is the reason on this mission is is not helpful and is is brushing him off. And also again, the men are now getting rancy, and also half his patrol has been killed. So yeah. it explains why Hornsby is also not giving an inch to her either. And having now yeah having now arrested her, he then actually stops trying to be Lawson's friend and yells at him as well. He's like you know. And actually, this is the thing where Hornsby, you're right, Hornsby is put in not a good light generally because he's, he's leading it incompetently. But when he makes a point saying, when you're in a situation, it doesn't matter what you feel about it, people are depending on you and you've got to do it. It's yeah. very hard to argue with that. Um, and, if I, is, and, and that's, yeah. yeah, that sums up his role, I think. He, he, yeah, yeah he, I got the impression that he, he's been asked to do this and so he just does it. Yeah. So wh- whatever you think about it, the skill or quality in which he's doing it, at least he's put himself out there. And in fact, again, I, th- I don't know whether, because then Lawson has some glib answer next to him but Lawson doesn't come across as winning the argument he just comes across as being no, glib it's, it's yeah you can't really knock Hornsby saying look we're all in danger and we can't yeah. sulk we've got to pull together but, I think I think this, we'll, we'll probably talk about this shortly this this feeds into quite a lot of the themes of the film as well so I think it's quite yeah. the characters do represent certain kind of um, ciphers or, or thematic processes yeah. in the film as well and this I think was where the strength of, of casting actually good actors in these roles because really you know you for this kind of film, you need two stars. You, know, you need Michael Caine and Cliff Robertson. You could yeah. have filled the rest with just dross, but there's, you know, they, Hornsby doesn't have a lot of lines in it, but he does, he delivers them very well. So do the characters. They, they, they get across what little they have to do so that you remember them. Yeah, I, I agree, and uh, it, it does make a difference to have that ensemble cast that are character actors specifically, yeah. because they don't necessarily need to take the limelight. But they do give good characterization, and they have. They, it's it's all very well acted, and um, you, you could it could get into a bit of a cliche, cliched situation. And I think because of because of the acting, it doesn't it doesn't go down that route. Yeah, but again, we're we're nearing the the uh, the destination of the mission, even though it's it's only halfway through the film, which implies yeah. that the film is done. The mission, <laughs> no, as our listener uh, weeps, in <laughs> his or her. <laughs> Uh, weeps into the, the, I don't know, into oblivion. I like to imagine uh, our listeners having a, a morning coffee on the commute. And, um, oh, and, well, there is. And, uh, yeah. If, yeah. If, if they live in London and work in Edinburgh. <laughs> <laughs> We're episode five. If they don't know we do long-form podcasting by now, they've got no one but themselves to blame. The timestamp is there for a reason, folks. Is, you can, you is, can yeah. leap ahead yeah. to one hour yeah. fifty when we finish this, this synopsis. <laughs> but um, our quest through the jungle has almost reached its destination we arrive at the Japanese camp um, whereupon they divide into two groups um, and it's basically 
Hornsby, Hearn and Lawson and the radio operator in one group and all the others in another group. So they clean up the important group. The others are sent off to be a diversionary if they need them to just lie in wait and shoot their weapons. And it's these four who have to go forward and um, get to the radio and destroy it and, and transmit the false signal. Which again is where the next calamity happens is the radio operator slips and falls crossing a stream and the valves inside the radio smash and can't be repaired. So their radio is now completely inoperable. Um, yeah, which is a, which is a bit of a bugger, um, it, it, because this is one of the fundamental points of the um, the task. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, it's broken, yeah. Um, and it was broken so stupidly as well, like just trying to jump over a, a, a bit of water from rock to rock, and he slips and it falls in and it breaks. Yeah, and you think, oh, what? I'd be really annoyed. And if, if Herm was meant to be helping the cross when he slips and Again, Hornsby's not having it, saying Hearn did it deliberately, and he's yelling yeah. at him. Hearn's actually quite relaxed, given he's under arrest. He seems to have reached his low point, and therefore has nowhere else to go. So he's he's like, no, I didn't. <laughs> and he goes, he's also quite relaxed, given that the very purpose of this mission has now been scuppered. Well, I don't, think, I don't think Hearn was completely committed to the purpose anyway. Well, no, you, yeah, that's, that's true. Given that he was the one that said at the start, what happens if Lawson is killed? Do we have to? <laughs> can we go can, home? Can we quit? Yeah, so he's probably hoping if Lawson was still on a landmine as they were crossing the field, he could just do a quick 180 and go home. So anyway, so the, the radio's out of action, at which point Hornsby, as they sneak up to the camp, and it's now night time, and they notice that they found the Japanese radio station. They can, they, they're basically hiding under a, a shed, and if they cross the open ground um, under searchlights, they can get to the radio station. And Hornsby improvises quite a good plan, actually, saying yeah. if one of us has to go in to destroy the radio, it may as well be three of us. I will go in and knock out the radio guy. The radio operator will come in and work the radio. And you, Lawson, will come in and transmit the signal before we destroy it. So they, they've now used a Japanese radio instead of their own, which, in fact, makes more it's sense. A better because, idea. Because I don't know how you could just get a radio and transmit a signal and the Japanese would find it and go, that must be our signal, you speak in Japanese. Yeah. I'd assume yeah. there's, like, codes and, and, and frequencies and stuff. This is a much more this is a, a solution that is much more likely to work. Yeah, although it does involve three men crossing an open field underneath this like guard tower with a machine gun on top. So that's the sticky part of it. And in as so, but Hornsby lays it out and again even this is the interesting thing, I like again in character notes, Hearn, though he has been bitching and yelling at Hornsby the whole journey, is actually helpful. Um he, yeah. he listens when Hornsby gives him his orders, I think covering fire and everything, and he advises Hornsby, take your cap off, you'll look less English. And and he, he doesn't do it with any sarcasm, he does it with a genuine attempt to help him. Um, and I, thought, well, it's the, I think it's the first point where Hearn has actually started to respect Hornsby, because what Hornsby is suggesting is both the only real solution they have, but he is himself going to deliver this solution. Yeah. So it shows Hornsby to be quite courageous, or at least, if not courageous... At the very least, um, stepping up and doing what he is there to do, and yeah. that is to lead that group. And so I think Hearn, as a consequence, sees him in a slightly different light. Yeah. In fact, it's, again, it's it's a it's a it's a, it's a consistency in, Hearn's, in Hornsby's character. He's sort of personally brave. He's just not good at leading men. The fact if he because yes. he chose to go up alone and deal with the radio operator and be the first one across. That's okay because yeah. that's perfectly with anything. He's just he's not very good at leading men. Yeah, um, exactly. As we discover, because he he does he does make it across. He makes the lone walk and gets mistaken for another um, one of the Japanese in the, in the dim light. And that makes sense because they're not expected to be attacked. He calls over the radio operator who also makes the walk across. But however, he is not convinced Lieutenant Lawson because when he was telling Lawson his plan, Lawson was saying, "I'm not doing it. That's not a pl- plan." 
And yeah. that's everyone can tell this is cobblers because that's he's, he's on a technicality that's not the plan. But if you're given an order in an operation, you probably yeah. have to follow it. You can't just say, you know, two days ago I was told something and therefore we can't improvise. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 actually a really interesting point in the film as well because it's, it, what what you see there is that throughout uh, up until this point, well, at least when they're in the jungle, Lawson I think comes across as as a competent experienced lieutenant yeah with with when it comes to it a sense of honor and bravery but actually at this point in time when it comes to it it's cowardice or or it might not be cowardice but it certainly comes across as cowardice well i think it's more of he's in a funk as in like he he, he just starts repeating so like, because at this point now so yeah. hornsby's made it across he's disabled the radio operator he's his his own radio guy is there you know twirling the dials they're ready and and all Lawson could say is, I told him I wouldn't go. I'm not going. I'm not going. I'm not going. He doesn't even try and do anything other, other than just stare straight ahead saying, I'm not going. And Hearn is even saying, you've got to go. They're there now. They're committed. You've yeah. got to do it. So this yeah. is Hearn, you know, the arch skyver, the completely guy who respects no authority, is even yeah. telling Lawson, you've got to do it. We're in it now. Um, and Lawson doesn't do this, it. It, it, what, what Lawson is doing is effectively, he, he's being a child in many ways, but what he's doing is proving to Hornsby that when it comes to it he he doesn't put his life on the line yeah like he said he wouldn't yeah so he's yeah. proving Hornsby wrong and in proving him wrong he's making it dangerous for everybody yeah and and so it transpires because either because they took too long and they delayed too long or because Hornsby was too busy trying to wave Lawson over the radio operator the Japanese one wakes up from being bopped over the head and shoots yeah. the British radio operator Hornsby then kills him, but the, the the game is up now. So all hell breaks loose. The diversionary party starts gunning down the Japanese. The searchlights are on. The, the sirens are wailing. Hornsby then manages to throw a few grenades in and blow up the radio. But on his way back across the field, he then gets gunned down and manages to make it far enough to die dramatically right in front of Lawson. Um, so his cold dead eyes which do not close are just left staring directly it's quite haunting, isn't it? it is yeah he's, he's a whoop straight down and he stares right across and you can see he's, he's looking lawson right in the eye and, and lawson is frozen again, by this it's, film. it's quite it's quite interesting because i i mean i wasn't i wasn't expecting him to die yeah. if i'm honest i mean i thought he would be in the film for the whole film and then and he's not so uh, that was quite an interesting move i mean obviously you know it's built like that for a reason but um i thought that he, he hornsby i was thinking would be a major character in this film and actually in the end he's cut down yeah and indeed that's i think what made this film stick with me when it comes to the reason why i chose it but it, mm. i remember watching it um again when i was younger thinking oh it's that guy from indiana jones he's he's an actor yeah. he, therefore he'll he's normally till the end and yeah. the, and i'd seen other war movies where this sort of thing doesn't happen and right in the middle of the film you're thrown off your guard. You don't know where your centre of gravity is anymore. You are, yeah, absolutely. And you know that if he can die in this, anything can happen. Yeah, yeah. And so again, so Hearn and Lawson, actually Lawson is still frozen. He, Hearn leaves Lawson because Lawson is now still just sort of staring at Hornsby. Hearn joins up with the rest of the, the Brits, of which another one has now been killed in the firefight. Uh, so there's only four of them left now, plus Hearn, and then Lawson joins them as well. And they all scarper. So they all run like mad away from the, the Japanese camp, which is in turmoil. And in, as daylight brings, they run like mad into what they didn't know was there, which was a Japanese airfield. So they didn't know it was there. The Japanese were clearly keeping it secret because they're desperately camouflaging it with, with branches and everything. And they and suddenly... that the Americans or the British didn't know it was there. Yeah. So this, again, puts the whole mission almost moot because it doesn't matter if they can radio anyone. As soon as they see the ships, they can just launch these aircraft and destroy yeah. the whole fleet. So this puts the whole thing as a redundant point but also adds another dimension, because as they see the air, airfield, 
the Japanese see them and chase them away again, but they know that the secret is out. So they realize that these six soldiers have the secret of the airfield, and they know also, because their radio's been destroyed, the British radio's been destroyed, they have no way of communicating it back. So this is where the second half of the film, sort of the the final act comes in, is these six guys... They can't get back to base. They can't let them get back to base. Yeah, the Japanese have a huge um, incentive to stop these guys escaping. It's not just revenge for the attack, it's nothing like that. It's a strategic secret will get out if they let these six guys go back. So this is now the new thing that they have to do. It's not about destroying the radio station, it's about getting home alive. This is another point in the film where I thought that the, um, the the British opened fire too quickly on the Japanese soldiers in the airfield because they basically, you know, they emerge into the the, the, the open space and a, a Japanese inf- infantryman sees them and then starts shouting at them in Japanese. All they have to do is run back into the jungle and then... No, but the, he does shoot one of them. <laughs> oh, yeah, I suppose, but... He, you know, I, just, I think by that point he's identified them as people who can be shot. It's almost like they they go bonkers. Like all of them just start shooting their their machine guns, yeah. and it just it draws attention. That everybody in the airfield is now aware that there are these soldiers firing yeah. at the edge of the jungle. Which if they just run in, yeah. okay, they would have still got found out. But they, they'd have had another five minutes or so. Although I thought the reaction they gave the Japanese was very interesting and actually quite good for the plot because you're right. They 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 see the guys and they one of them get one of the infantry guards gets shot down, but most of the Japanese um, soldiers don't instantly chase after them. They start disguising the airfield. So it's clearly shown that so the secret of the airfield is much more important than chasing yeah. guys or avenging yeah. It's like, we got to defend the airfield, oh my god, we're, we're rumbled. And then they work out, we just got to chase them down. And so the pursuit begins, in which Lawson comes alive a bit more now. He's Because he's the, the last surviving officer, and obviously he wants to get home more than anybody, um, he starts to lead them. He, um, I think he, at this point he ducks off the trail and, and uses his fluentless Japanese to lead them astray. It's the same trick again. I imagine, in fairness to the Japanese, you probably don't expect that competency in Japanese to come from the soldiers. If you hear something shouting Japanese, it's probably one of us. Well, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. That's what happens when you have a superpower. And the chase begins, and again, so there's, there's lots of evading the Japanese, they you know, throw grenades, they machine gun, so there's a bit of a cat and mouse thing. But in the one of the cat and mouse thing, um, Thornton, who's portrayed as, apart from being a bit bonkers, um, is one of the more competent soldiers. As he's dispatching a Japanese silently, he gets shot, not yes. not fatally, but clearly in an incapacitating way. So he gets carried off. They're now about halfway home because they stop at the same temple they had the big argument. And Thornton is, is being patched up while they while they plan out their next move. Um, yeah, and he's there for a while, isn't yeah. he? Looks, Although, he looks, yeah. I mean, it's a slow death, effectively. Yeah. Thornton played by, um, again, another slow death. He was the um, Robert the Bruce's father in Braveheart. So, um, yeah. yeah, he again, was. He's yeah. got a very characterful voice because he was playing through bandages in that film. And in fact, actually, prior to this, this scene when Thornton gets shot, we hear for the first time, they're sort of they're lying exhausted having gotten their latest round of escaping. And we hear this weird public address system start to fire up in the jungle. And it's quite it's quite jarring as well because you're not expecting it. And it's, a, it's an alien sound. Yeah, um, especially when they go, you know, check out price on till three. <laughs> Uh, it is in fact um, so when they hear the, this and it's also because it's a uh, you know, 1940s public address system it's, it has that kind of feedback loop it's kind of it's, so it doesn't even sound nice when, they, when it it's happens it's quite irritating yeah um, and it's, it's again we're, we're more than an hour into the film now it's a two hour film it didn't feel like it but it's um, we're, we're well past halfway when we meet the last major character of the film which is um, Major Yamaguchi who's again either the leader or a high commanding officer of the Japanese forces yeah. who does has pretty good English it's not 
Lieutenant Lawson Japanese, but it's certainly um, it's, it's passable English. No, it's realistic. Yeah, it, it's in fact because he's speaking with his voice. That's that's, that's the difference. Ken Takakura is actually talking. <laughs> but it's has, uh, now before we go, has Ken Takakura, who plays Takakura. Major Yamaguchi, what else has he been in? Uh, I yeah, he was. I recognise him. Yeah, because he played a lot. Again, he played these kind of roles as in. He played the Japanese people in English films. There was, uh, is it Black Rain? Oh, he's in, ah, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Things yeah. of that nature. Uh, who's the, the the other Ken who's the, who does good work now? And, um, Ken Watanabe? Ken, yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Ken Watanabe. In many yeah. ways, Ken Takakura was the Ken Watanabe of his at times. It's <laughs> <laughs> very confusing. <laughs> well, who, who's because, the, well, they have massively different surnames. <laughs> but both yeah. called Ken. Well, now, yeah. <laughs> that traditional Japanese name, Ken. I'm going to live saying Ken's probably quite common, given the two actors I've just named, they're both called Ken. Traditional British names are quite popular in Japan, because obviously you've got Ken Takakura, Ken Watanabe, and you've got um, Colin Hirohito. <laughs> <laughs> oh. on, on with the plot synopsis. On with the plot synopsis. There's only another two and a half hours of the plot to go. So. <laughs> Meiji Yamaguchi is, is broadcasting to the, the, the survivors of the patrol uh, and trying his hand at a bit of psychological warfare. Because he's basically saying, we're after you. We know you can't radio back. We know that we're not going to let you get away with knowing the secret of the airfield. Um, but here's your offer. Surrender to us, and we'll just keep you under wraps for a couple of days until we've destroyed the convoy, and then we can let you go. Major Yamaguchi uses a visual metaphor saying, you're like water in a bottle. Wherever you go, you're going to end up at the bottleneck. And, you know, all roads lead to the killing field in front of the British base, because that's the only place they can possibly go to. They're being pushed away, but there's no escape. So he makes them this offer. They actually, at this point, think, sod it, we're not doing it. I think even Campbell, who uh, who, who would jump at the chance to surrender, isn't doing yeah. it yet. But then they're chased... Not yet, but they're chased even further. Um, the messages keep on coming. Yamaguchi says he makes this thing five times a day, then he'll make it four times a day, then he'll make it three times a day, and eventually I'll make it once and I'll catch you. So he's he's, he's playing on their nerves, and he's also you know, saying, whoever's leading you is doing you no favours. It's, it's, a, it's a classic tactic, isn't it? It's, you know, you guilt trip the, the, the oh, yeah. leader into, into doing it. You know, it's quite an effective process, quite an effective tool, I think. Yeah. And yes, so Yamaguchi's using it pretty well. Um, and then Thornton is shot in the next encounter, and so now... Actually, the, the men's nerves is starting to be worn away, and you know, they're starting to pretend to believe this offer. And now, sort of, they're saying, "Well, you know, if one of our men is wounded, you know, we have to get him medical treatment. We have to give up." Lawson's having none of it. Lawson is going home. I would say Lawson at this point seems to me in a mixture of survival mode and shock. I think he's still not in his yeah. great wits. He's he's it's just... borderline resignation, isn't it? Yeah. Um, he, yeah. He's he's he he's almost in a trance yeah. as to what has happened. But he's also um, not giving up. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. He's Hearn, in that kind yeah. of no-man's land, almost. Yeah. Hearn is much more in basic survival mode, as in, I know we won't survive if we give up, we are going home, I'm not giving up. But the other ones are kind of not made quite so solid stuff and want to give up. So there's, there's only Griffiths and McLean out of the two regular guys left. They're a bit worn down. They've made, they've clearly made a supreme effort to get this far, because it looks like they've covered what they took them days to cover in a couple of hours. They've just been sprinting away through the jungle. Yeah. So they're exhausted, tired, you know, they've taking massive losses they want to just stop and they want they will basically want the reassurance that Yamaguchi's given them saying we're not going to hurt you but come on give it up you know we, we'll, uh, we're all, we're all, we all we don't want to do any more death <laughs> and then of course there's Campbell who was, who was leaping at the chance to give up and, and surrender <laughs> to the because, point yeah. because let's not forget he's a nasty piece of work <laughs> he is a scumbag <laughs> And and so Thornton is now Thornton is now wounded again. He's he's mortally wounded and can't even walk. Yeah. But being 
yeah, the tough old jock that he is is not giving up and and is is all still holding a gun on Campbell, saying, "If you surrender, I will shoot you." So whilst Hearn and Lawson sleep, Campbell takes his opportunity to basically murder Thornton. He gives him a drink of water and then uh, throttles him. Yeah. He puts yeah. the machete Wait, under his throat, him, yeah. so either yeah. either chokes or drowns or whatever. He doesn't. He goes quick. I will say again, we're talking about Campbell being the worst. This is the worst moment in Campbell's worst appearance when he murders is, Thornton. Yeah. But even then, I mean, this that's a pretty irredeemable act. Campbell is shown not to be enjoying it. There was a there was a seriously distressed look on his face as he kills Thornton, and as yeah. he leaves, he throws away his machete, the murder weapon, even though that would be a useful thing to have in the jungle. He clearly is disgusted at himself. So there is at least a, a, mo- a bit of it's shade a in Campbell. There, yeah, isn't it? yeah. I, I, I actually, get the impression that Campbell is an incredibly selfish, self-serving individual. Yeah. But he did that through necessity, yeah. rather than him actually wanting to do it. And I think you have to you have to take that into context there as well. You know, he, he gets his comeuppance, but yeah. he, he he very much was a point of, I absolutely must ensure that we surrender. I have to have to kill him. Yeah, yeah. And indeed, the previous levels when when um, earlier on in the mission when things were a bit lighter, Campbell was seen actively laughing and joking with Thornton because he, even though he he moans a lot and he waves his broken arm around and he steals cigarettes, he's also seen to be one of the patrol who can have a laugh and a joke. And but yeah, but then he's also a nasty piece of work who will ultimately yeah. serve number one as he did when he killed Thornton. And so he grabs Griffiths and McLean. So the three non-protagonists run off and to the Japanese. Miyamaguchi had made it clear, you all got to surrender or none of you are going to be accepted. So their only chance is to, to give up Launson and Hearn too, who wake just in time to see the others gone and find Thornton murdered. So they run off before they get caught, thus leading to the final act of the chase, which is just now Lawson and Hearn with the other other men captured or dead. Yeah. And so it sets up again. It's a bit more debilitating even further. Basically, they've, they've gone from sort of being a combat patrol, having guns and knapsacks and, yeah. and stuff. They're down to, I think, basically, um, Lawson's got a, a, a pistol, Hearn's got nothing, their shirts are open, their backpacks are gone, they're physically exhausted, and the... They've probably got cigarettes still. <laughs> well, you always have cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you, yeah, and they've, been, you know, they've been running for, you know, nigh on 24 hours now, or, yeah. or whatever it is. And they, yeah. they, I mean, it's, they look wasted, they look yeah. gone, don't they? Yeah. And just to, just to further niggle at the morale, the Yamaguchi's broadcasts continue. This time yeah. he's, he's putting the, uh, the men on the line that they've captured. So interestingly, Campbell's attempt to save himself was completely redundant. And ironically, because when they caught him, they found the possessions of the Japanese lieutenant he'd looted earlier, including yeah. the ring he'd hacked off. And yeah. it's interesting. He dies quite a gruesome death then. He doesn't die. It's, it's shown he, he's hung upside down, bleeding a lot, and looks semi-conscious. But you actually see him moan, so you realise he's not even dead. He's just hanging. He's yeah. left for dead. So yeah, so poor Campbell gets a grisly end. I assume he doesn't live long after the end of the film. But yeah, he's left hanging upside down. And indeed, Yamaguchi is almost apologetic when he when he's on the radio saying, "And I couldn't stop my men, even if I'd wanted to." Yamaguchi does look a bit distressed the fact that his men have lynched someone when he gave his word he wouldn't. Because we do learn that Yamaguchi. Is is certainly a good egg. He's um. He's... I think he's a. It, it, I, you know, it, this is yeah. This is a, a kind of moral point in the film. Yeah. He seems to be a man of his word. Yeah. Now the interesting thing is though is that we never really know whether he would be a man of his word if they did all surrender. So that's and and that's the that's the dilemma that Hearn and Lawson have. Yeah. 
and they, they obviously don't know, but it, it's, and also I think it's a dilemma that we as the audience have as well, because you end up quite, I wouldn't say you warm to Yamaguchi, but yeah. you, you, you believe him to be essentially good. Yeah. And yet, what possibly could happen to them? I mean, let them go. No, I think he wouldn't kill them out of hand, which is what Hearn says. If they get us, they'll kill us. Um, yeah. I think he wouldn't, but they will go to prison, you know, they'll go to a prison camp, which is not a nice prospect in the, in the, in the World War II Japanese camp. And I think Yamaguchi yeah. is not a, a, you know, a murderer, but he's certainly, I think they both, even when he's making the offer, they all know there's no way once they're caught, they'll be gone in a few days because they made a yeah. deal. But you're right, if he, um, he certainly doesn't kill Griffiths and McLean. And he puts them on the radio. They, you know, they sort of plead for everyone to give. They apologise what they did. They plead for the other guys to come in. Again, Hinder state, I don't give a toss what they do to those two. Because even though those are his mates, indeed, McLean is somebody seen as palling around with quite a lot. It's, he, you know, he, he's clearly too late. It's, it's, yeah. it's too late to rescue them, and he, he has to, in a way, he has to not give a toss what they do to them because that's not his responsibility anymore. They gave themselves up. And yeah. then Yamaguchi stages a couple of mock, ex- mock executions. He says, you know, you've given your final warning, right, I'm going to kill them. We hear two gunshots, and in fact he's just fired his pistol next to them. And they are, It's that old kind of fake-out, um, where he places a gun against their head, the gunshot sounds, and we cut to the surprised face of the soldier who's not dead. We're really, given he's playing for radio, he didn't need to do that. He could have just no, fired he, he could have yeah. fired it anywhere. But, you know, for the, for the benefit yeah. of the camera and us, he has to pretend to execute them. Which is coming back to Yamaguchi's sense of honour. He actually looks at them and he's almost a bit sad because they look utterly yeah. surprised to be alive. And he says, yeah. "Do you find it so easy to believe I'd kill you?" So it, it is. Yeah, 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 because they they're totally shocked. Yeah, so they're thinking, "Why am I not dead? You're clearly yeah. the bad guy." But so he doesn't do that. And in fact, he's later shown giving them water and, and taking care of them to the point where they they got more water than they handle. They're like, "Oh no, thank you very much. So I've had quite enough." Uh, so he's now yeah. got. Yeah. <laughs> Madame Monsieur with these Ferrero Rocher. He's spoiling us. With stale water <laughs> and biscuits, you are spoiling us. <laughs> But again, the, the chase continues, and in fact, this again, so with the point of exhaustion now, they can't even, the, the broadcast coming, Hearn comes up with another idea for survival, saying, basically, here's a plan, let's not try and get home to warn them of the convoy, let's just sneak away, double back, hide for a couple of days, and by that point, the convoy will be discovered and destroyed, the airfield will be an open secret, the Japanese will not bother scouring the jungle for two strays, because there's It'll no, be over. There's no secret to keep anymore. Yeah, essentially saying, yeah. let's let's not worry about alerting them to the convoy. Let's just you know bugger off and look after ourselves. Lawson is again. You talk about it get hit in a trance. He's like, we are not gonna sacrifice the thousands of sailors who will die. You know, it's a it's a fair point. You don't want to you you leave it. But the way it he is, says it, it isn't like I've got to do it. It's like a, a soldier wouldn't do that. He's 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 almost trying to assume the role of that. But it's it's an interesting point as well because up until that point, I would have expected. Lawson to have offered that opportunity, but it was Hearn who offered the opportunity. Hearn who suggested that we just basically run off into the jungle and wait. And Hearn up until that point had been quite forceful in the idea that, no, we are going to get back to the camp. And he's also throughout been reasonably strong in his opinion of his fellow soldiers and supporting them and helping them. And at this point, he's basically said, I'm not going to bother anymore. Yeah. This is it. Let's just go. You know, it's, it's not our responsibility. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So it's not that necessarily that the tables have turned because Lawson isn't exactly enthusiastic about going back, but, but it, he's stoic. Yeah. Whereas Hearn is, is gone. I think Hearn's gone mentally. Well, I think I mean, he's been betrayed by, he's literally lost all his friends um, at this yeah. point. Again, he makes a, a very good point, which is consistent to his character, is that, you know, 
we, we will never make it back. We'll die. Even if we do make it back, what's going to happen? I will just get told to, to bugger off. I'm not going to get a medal for this. Um, yeah. you're, you know, what are they going to do to you? Make you the president? He realizes there's no gain for them other than you know, saving the lives of people he's never seen. Again, at this point, he would put him, you know, he, he'd risk his life to save even Hornsby or one of his, his crew. But he doesn't know the, you know the sailors. This is an abstract thought and a, and a random number to him. He's in the middle of a war where something bad will happen out of his range of, of kind yeah. of, of out of his control, out of his human control, as it were. Out of his control, it, and also yeah, his 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 um his Ken. He doesn't know. He's never seen he's seen these ships. Never met these sailors. It's just a name yeah. and a number to him. And it's interesting, yeah, the fact that he mentioned it because Hearn has been shown pretty much throughout the film to be right about a lot of things. He's very rarely wrong, and he makes a couple of points here. Firstly, that this is pointless. Which is yeah. interesting. Is like, is this the voice of the director talking? Because that could tie into the theme of the movie. But also, he calls out Lawson on why he's so keen to get back. Lawson is not doing it to be a hero. He's doing it because he is racked with what he did to Hornsby, yeah, um, he and is, is trying yeah. to atone yeah. for it. And at this point, yeah, uh, Hearn says he's he's not playing along anymore. He's not going to do this. At which point, Lawson puts a gun on him and says, "Yes, you are. Two of us are going yeah. back because it increases the odds that one of us will make it." Um, and yeah, and it's an interesting kind of vault face from Lawson, I think, in that context, uh, and from Hearn in that regard as well. Uh, but it, and again, we'll come on to it in the themes. But I think it's another example of uh, an instance where a a cowardly option has been put forward from an up until that point stoic or what seems to be brave individual. And I, I, I think that's an interesting point. I'll, I'll go into a little bit more about what okay. I mean by that. But yeah, it's something interesting there. Although I would say Hearn, though he's been though he's been solid, has also been you know his first words to the officer was when do we scrub the mission? Yeah, he, that's he, true. He yeah, got that's into trouble. He got into trouble with Hornsby for saying let's go home. Yeah. He, he almost when they yeah. find the wounded Japanese patrol, he was saying we can take him back to camp if you want. So he's he's never been committed to the mission. But you're right, he's the, he's the first one to sort of say let's scrub this. This is no good. We you know this, this does no um, good at all. But they, they again so now. <laughs> it's now being herded by Lawson, pretty much, because Lawson's yeah. the only one with a gun, and they make it to the end, the edge of the 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 field they have to cross, and suddenly realise the Japanese have got there first. The the the, the field is you yes. know has 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 snipers all around it. They they can't make it, and they realise it's done. And the Yamaguchi's final broadcast comes saying, "Yeah, you are done. Come and surrender." And that's the point they realise. Oh well, if we you know, we must be pretty close now. They, you know, they've closed in on us, but they must be spread very thin. Let's yeah. sneak back and kill Yamaguchi to cause enough chaos that they'll all freeze and we can we can get a head start, which is what they, find they do. They find Yamaguchi very easily. Yeah, I thought that too. Even that they've not met him and they don't know where he's hiding yeah. in the entire jungle. I, I thought I thought the same thing. I thought, well, that's that's. But then I started thinking, this kind of plays into it is because the the trap has been closing on them. So by definition, the, the they Yamaguchi's are HQ the is yes. closing on the trap, um, and also yes. it's the confidence of they're chasing them. There is no way Yamaguchi thought they would be attacked. You know, he spread his men throughout the entire jungle to catch them. And the idea that they would come in, because basically his, his defense is two prisoners and a desk. That's, that's, yeah, all, that's, he's, that's all he's got to, to defend his, um, his honor. Um, yeah. and, and so they, and, you know, know a, a desks, desks are very useful. They are. But, but, and, well, desks are very useful, and it, one came in very handy in Quigley Down Under. Well, not really, because he got jumped from behind, as does Yamaguchi. Oh, we did, didn't we? Yeah, and actually, Yamaguchi gets killed as well, so what, desks are yeah. terrible for protecting. Well, what you need is two desks, that's the thing. They're both, both, both <laughs> yeah, desk based yeah. operatives. Four, four ultimately would be perfect, one for each side. Yeah, maybe the one for the top, so you have a little hidey hole. Yeah, add, add some wheels, maybe a cannon. You've got a, you've got a prototype wooden tank there. But anyway, so they, they do sneak back to, to HQ, um, or the, the Japanese place with the desk, and shoot Yamaguchi. So again, the, the, well, the, one of the few honourable characters in the entire film gets killed out of hand. 
Um, he, he never sees them. He never sees them. He never. It, no. it's, it's they're from. They're shooting them from behind, and they're in the jungle. Yeah, the, so the revolver yeah, sneaks yeah, out yeah, the leaves. Yeah, yeah. But a, a, another another example of um, not cowardice per se, but um, I don't know if in a traditional war film there would have been quite a standoff, I think, and there wasn't here. Yeah, it it was quite a cowardly way to do it. They were hiding and they fired at him from the jungle. Yeah, well, his back was turned. However, that does create enough confusion for them to to get back to the edge of the field and and off they go into the the finale, which is played very dramatically. Especially on the edge of the field, you know, don't forget it's to zigzag, using zigzag, and off they run, and then the music the music blares up, and yeah. and it goes on for ages as well. It does, and it the the thing I liked about this is it, there's no close up, there's no close up of Lawson no. sprinting or hooping. You just see two indiscriminate men dashing yeah. across this field. Bullets are, are flying and whizzing, and, and yeah. the the British have now realised what's going on. They're giving covering fire, and so there's there's a firefight going on across this open field, which is all shot in long distance, and all you can yeah. see is dust trails and a couple of figures. Um, it's really well, it's really well filmed, and yeah. it's really quite exciting, I yeah. think. And and then bump, one of the running figures is felled by gunfire. Bump, you don't know which one. You don't know which one. The second one is fell by gunfire, but no, he's back up again. He, he makes yeah. it. So one of the figures, stag- we still don't know, staggers across into safety, collapses, and the entire battalion kind of gathers around them. And all you see is just like a thousand men <laughs> across this parade ground staring and down. from above as well. So yeah. you, you see you see these men kind of covering over the beach. You can't see the person, so you don't know who it is, who, yeah. who has made it back. And again, so you have the, the colonel, you know, well, well, who was the other man out with you? What, how many, was it just the two of you? What happened? And you, can, you still don't know. So it, it really ramps up the tension as to who has lived and who I would suggest they perhaps milk it. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the fact. You had two protagonists. One of them's dead. And I think this, this is how you do it. And then... Up pops the survivor, and it is her. Yeah, it's her. It's, it's Michael Caine. Michael Caine, who is, ex- who is exhausted, utterly beaten, and delivers the final line of the film when he's asked who was out there with you. And he said, Ah, there's a bloody hero. He killed 15 bleeding chaps single-handed. <laughs> and, uh, at which point the kill doesn't know what to make of his own. 15, you say? 30, if you like. And then off he goes to retrieve Lawson's dead body, and then the yeah. credits rise, which are short. It's just the end because they're all the credits at the start. Yeah, so it's exactly. just the, the the end, and that is how Too Late the Hero concludes. It's the Volkswagen Beetle of uh, films, isn't it? When you have the credits at the start and not the end. No, no. This is how this, this is how they made it back in the day. Um, do you know whose yeah, well, fault? Yeah. Do you know whose fault yeah. it was that we we have massive overloaded credits? I don't, I'm going to go with. Uh, George Lucas. The answer is George Lucas. <laughs> he, hey, he, yes. Because he two things. He wanted to begin with just the Star Wars and no credits, so he had to pay a fee, I think, to the Directors Guild because he didn't start with directed by George Lucas. So he just so that's why it was short to begin with. And the end credits were because I think it was something like um, it was an earlier film which was American Graffiti where he, oh, he yeah. they ran out they ran short on funds. So rather than pay people, he offered them a place in the credits, which is why now you get you know the hairdresser to the driver to the uh, the receptionist oh, in all the credits. So that is why we now get ten minutes worth of credits at the end of every Marvel film that you've got to sit through before you find out the stinger at the end of it. Well, some of us don't have to sit through that. The true believers sit through. <laughs> this this concludes the synopsis. Let's have an extra lead, yeah. We'll, we'll be back after these brief messages. Welcome back to Weekend at Crombie's, where we're looking at Too Late the Hero. We will, if you stuck with us, well done. We are now going to look at the reason why I chose the film, for it was I who got to pick the film, and we'll be looking at some of the themes in the film. So, to begin with, why did I choose Too Late the Hero? 
Um, why indeed, Hugh? Why indeed? It's a question I've asked a lot over the last week. The film wasn't a success. We'll come into how, how bad it was, but it didn't make many. And I think, like a lot of films that flopped, television channels get them very cheaply. So they tend yeah. to be they tend to be on. And back in the, the dark days, when there's only four television channels at all, I do remember catching this, like, on a Friday night. This must, must have been on ITV. No, it was a BBC. BBC, like, at yeah. 11.30 on BBC. Because BBC used to do those things in those days. They, they, they had all the entertainment on BBC One. You'd have your yeah. news night, you'd have your news at nine, and then you'd have your documentary, and then when everyone was to bed, you'd have your, your movie. And I thought, and, you know, what better than, you know, a 14-year-old boy or two to, on a Friday night than watch an old war movie, which I indeed did. So I, I remember watching this. You, you, were, you were old before your time. <laughs> I was I was ahead of my time. I was doing the Netflix binge watching when I only had BBC One to, to, to facilitate I, me. I, I like the idea. This is a Friday night as well. <laughs> it, it was a Friday night, your Friday night movie. Yeah. But I remember watching it, and I again, I being being a the type of child I was, really liked war movies. I liked, you know, I had the FX models. I, read I think the what you're looking for is sociopath. <laughs> Um, no, I like the war movies. I like, again, I think things like, we're talking like A Bridge Too Far, uh, yeah. The Longest Day, the the big classic war movies that I liked. I got all the epic stuff, I read the commandos, and I thought, oh, this is like one of those. You know, I like a movie where you get a lot of commandos yeah. going through, blazing down those uh, those fiendish enemy, um, and this was what I was watching. And so I watched it, and it stuck with me. And I think, yeah. and it wasn't until many years later when I acquired the DVD and watched it again, I realised why it had stuck with me, because mm-hmm. it's not just the kind of movie that I, I, I thought it was when I watched it. Back when I thought it was, I thought, it's just uh, guys go in the jungle, shoot a few guns, have a few laughs, and then some get back, some don't, and there's a mission. Watching it yeah. again, it stuck with me. We'll come to the themes of why it did, but it, it essentially, I came across, it's an anti-war movie, and in very much. film yeah, as very a much. war movie. And that is why I'm, I wanted to revisit it more than I wanted to watch, say, A Bridge Too Far, or The Longest <laughs> Day, or um, The Big Red One, or The Sands of Rajima, that kind of stuff. Yeah, okay, um, yeah. Those kind of movies where they're almost propaganda yeah, this kind of stuff. But this, well, this was very different. And they're the not necessarily with... bad films. No, okay, some of them are very good films, absolutely. but I know what you mean. That they are, they are um, chest-thumping even even, inter- even interesting ones like, say, The Great Escape or Star Trek 17, where you have again, shades and character and stuff, it is basically, you. there are good guys, there are bad guys, you are yeah. supporting the good guys in doing their thing, and you want the bad they're, guys to They're lose. heroic in some ways, aren't they? That, yeah. that's, that's what they are. There's, I don't think there's a lot of, although the film, Too Late the Hero, there's not a lot of heroism in the film. Yeah, so it's stuck with me, and I think delving into the themes is where we'll get to it, but that's why I wanted to pick it. And we can probably go into the first theme, again, being an anti-war movie. Um, yeah. Is that I think it is just that um, the I think the the it's interesting how this was advertised. The, the the advertisement for this was basically I think war it's a dying business. Um, yes. And it's 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 shown in that context. Interestingly, the DVD <laughs> seems to try and sell it a different way, saying it shows how a man can can summon courage from nowhere and dig it up. I love that's what it's doing. I think it's essentially saying right. war is you know war is you know, it is pointless exercise. It achieves nothing other than yeah. killing men for no reason. Again, everyone everyone is dragged down and degraded by it, and it, there was there was no virtue in it. There's no honor. There's no heroism in it. And we'll come back to yeah that that final run when um you know when Hearn made it across the the line. I think this was this was when it actually set its stall out because Hearn makes it. He he kind of wins the mission, um and his first words are not by the way there's a Japanese airfield you've got to save the convoy which would be the war winning thing to do. Yeah. He gives. An ironic answer. He, you know, because Lawson didn't kill thirty Japanese or fifty Japanese. No. He he says he's a hero. He didn't even say he's a hero. He got me home safely. He drove me to this. You know, I, I owe my life to him. He just says yeah. there's a hero. He does the kind of thing you think heroes do, doesn't he? Sod you yeah. and and yeah. walks off. 
So even Hearn isn't the hero of the movie, he's just the survivor. Mm. And interestingly, his prediction about how he won't get anything nice from happening probably does come true. We don't see it, but we imagine Hearn is not sent home yeah. with glory. He's probably given a few days light duties, um, a pat on and the back. And then sent off on a, another mission Yeah, and a, an extra cigarette ration. Um, yeah. And that's it. That's all Hearn. And, and, and all, his, all his friends are dead. He's gone through hell, and he's achieved nothing either. And the, probably the convoy attack will still go ahead if he deigns to mention it or not. It's not a happy ending. I know it isn't. I mean, I, I completely agree with you. The film is quite a strong anti-war film as well, yeah. and uh, I think it, it presents that it presents that kind of narrative re- really well. There are there are many instances and many scenes in the film wh- in, in which the the characters are put in situations where they can make one of two decisions, and in almost all instances they make the kinds of decisions that are futile. Not necessarily the wrong decisions, but the decisions that that cannot help them and that that can only lead to death and destruction. The tone of the film isn't bleak, but it's a, it it is quite a bleak film in that context. I mean, the, it might be the timing of the film or, or when it was made, but but it 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 has that it it has a kind of late sixties feel to the film. But it is very very bleak. When you when I actually stepped back a little bit and reflected on the film, I thought. I mean, crikey, there's there's not really anything to take out of this. It is a, it is a very strongly moralistically anti-war film. Yeah, it's interesting because to delve into some of the other context of the film. So this was Robert Aldrich. He was hot off the back of Dirty Dozen, which was a very successful yeah. film. Very um, big success. Yeah. And and interestingly, which is another very long running film for, for its time, it was over two hours, I think, and involved fourteen mismatched ne'er do wells, um, led by a kind of a, a tough guy, was Lee Marvin, um, to achieve a mission in the war. And at the end of it, most of them are dead. Um, but and then so they almost this is almost a, a, a spiritual sequel, except it isn't because in the the Dirty Dozen film, the mission is achieved, the the the, the, the goal is achieved. The survivors at the end, though there's a bit of irony in the fact that you know, they're all in hospital and they got the bandage of the general saying, well done, guys. They look at each other like, oh, great. All the, the characters we know and care about are still alive. Lee Marvin's still there. Charles Bonson's still there. They are still, you know, they'll, they'll get better and they'll... It's they'll, bombastic, they'll, isn't it? Yeah. It's and, and yeah, yeah. intended to make you feel great at the end. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah come yeah. on. Whereas this film, you know, the person, certainly I think most people would assume is the protagonist, Lawson, doesn't make it and also doesn't cover himself in glory doing much either. The, again, the... Um, no. None of the guys. And Michael Caine. Michael Caine at the time yeah. was it was a right. If you know, it wasn't at his. It wasn't in the height of his fame, but he was certainly a rising star. You would have expected him to have been the hero of the film as well. I think you know, if he's in it, he would have been an interesting character to have watched. And you know, he doesn't play that. Yeah. He does, plays quite a sympathetic character to a certain extent, but he's he's a morally ambiguous character yeah. as well. But yeah, so the to, to back of the making of the film. So Aldrich was hot off the back of the Dirty Dozen. Gets gets the money together to make this film, which you'd imagine is similar to it. Production values, I think, are high because they're shooting on location in the jungle. I can't imagine that's easy to do. I think he was very much against Cliff Robertson doing it. I think that's why. Oh, was he? Yeah, he, he, yeah. They asked, "Who do you want?" He said, "I want anyone but Cliff Robertson." <laughs> um, but the, <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> yeah, that may have been why he didn't let him go back and win it, claim his Oscar as a kind of like. Thing, yeah, isn't he? Yeah. But the movie was made and was a massive failure. The yeah. biggest loss-making movie of the studio, pretty much, yeah. I think, finished Aldrich's career in terms of making big movies. I'm not sure he made. Can't remember where his where his career went from that, but I don't think he made. Something after that. Um, Nothing on the scale of the Dirty Dozen, for example. Because this, was, yeah, before that was the Flight of the Phoenix, the Dirty Dozen, the Killing yeah. of Sister George. After that, 
not a lot else. No. So yeah, so it <laughs> kind of didn't do much of his career either. And it was again, it went off to be forgotten. It went off to be sold to BBC One to put on late night TV. And I think the reason for that are probably a couple. Um, one, you're right, it's bleak. You don't. It's not a film you film. Uh, you, not a film you leave feeling good about. No. Um, and also. I think you'd go along and see it, and if you were told, you know, it's a World War Two commando movie about, you know, the Brits and the Americans sticking one to the Japanese, and or hell breaks loose, you'd think it's one type and of film. And it's got Cliff Robertson and Michael Caine in it. Yeah, who again, Michael Caine, you know, he's yeah, he is that charismatic young star, Cliff Robertson. I think he either played cowboy roles or he played that kind of yeah. tough guy, um, tough guy roles before. Um, yeah, Oscar winner at the time. Oscar, yeah. you, you'd probably go in into the film with a different impression of what it's going to be yeah. than it turns out. Yeah. But then also the so firstly it's not what you think it is, and secondly I think again the the one thing it's screaming is it's a Vietnam um, allegory at a time when no one wanted to see a Vietnam allegory. Yeah, it's true. the interestingly I looked at one of the older posters and the poster as well as having too late the hero has a massive three dimensional wording of war and lying on top of yeah. it is a dead soldier. But the soldier, soldier yeah. has an M16 and an American 1960s, 70s uniform. He's not dressed as a World War II soldier. That's clearly what they're messing with getting across. It's a jungle warfare. The officers are incompetent. The enemy are implacable. No one wants to be there. It's pointless. It's deadly. It's it's useless. And it's you know it came. I think it came before Mash or before you know, certainly before Platoon but, or yeah. Fourth of July or the 80s when. Almost that what, Vietnam movies were acceptable because it was less fresh in the minds of people who'd done it and the directors yeah, were coming through. Uh, yeah, I think I think at, at the time that it was made, most likely that the the Vietnam War in the minds of Americans was far too raw to be making commentary of yeah. whether whether a film would be pro or anti still would be too too clear in the mind too soon i think but it was still, Whereas, it was still ongoing in 1970 the war was still happening yeah absolutely yeah. And, you know, uh, that's not to say that vietnam war films weren't made whilst the war was still going on or very soon after the war but it wasn't until the mid to late 70s at least really when we started to see that kind of reflection back on vietnam or with films like the deer Hunt, for example yeah. which would have been in 77 or 78 yeah. and it's at that time when you start to get that um, critical reflection of America's role and what the war meant and the futility of it. Yeah. But at, in, in the early 70s and in the late 60s, there wasn't an appetite nor a, a desire to critically reflect on a war which was very much full throttle yeah. where American soldiers were dying yeah. at, at, at that point. And it may be how MASH got away with it, again, being a Korean War allegory for the Vietnam War, because yeah. it wasn't you know, it was a, it was an army hospital, so you got to see the, the reality of it, but not the we're in the jungle dying and fighting and being pointless. Um, and, and whilst it's very obvious that Mash is an anti-war film, it's also a very satirical film. Yeah. Um. And and Too Late the Hero is a very literal film. Yeah. And also, yeah, Mash. Had, I think Mash had more warmth. It. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But I think again, we talk about again, we've talked about other films in uh, Weekend at Crombie's not having their time. Runaway Train was a movie that was not of its time. Oh. Yeah, um, and and quickly so, down under as well. Yeah, um, even Santa Claus the movie, if it had been yeah, half a decade earlier, might have had a better reception. Films have yeah, their yeah, moment, yeah. and this certainly had exactly the wrong moment to be released, which I said, says nothing about its quality, but certainly about its audience. I think people who like war movies would not have enjoyed this film. People who were sort of anti-Vietnam would not have even thought about watching this film. Um, so yeah. where's the audience coming from? Yeah, exactly. Where, where, yeah, where is the audience coming from? I, I would even go as far as to say... And I know it's a, it's a Vietnam War allegory, but it is a Second World War film. I don't even think there was an appetite in the late 60s 
in Britain for films that were critically reflecting on the Second World War, because the Second World War, you know, was and is a part of collective British history yeah. of which it, there, you know, it's, it's very outside of the futility of war itself. It's a very different type of war and a different type of warfare in the sense that it was a almost a kind of moral crusade against a specific individual and group of people who were a threat, whereas the Vietnam War perhaps was less obviously driven by that. Yeah. yeah. From both perspectives, from a British perspective and from an American perspective, I, I don't, there just wouldn't have been the appetite for that kind of critical reflection. And also, again, the theatre, I think, makes a difference too, the fact it was the, yeah. the South West Pacific, because it's it's not... You, you imagine a World War II thing, of the British perspective, you're seeing Spitfires, the Blitz, hiding in prison yeah. camps, maybe the you know, D-Day, you're imagining, again, grand uh, campaigns of advance. Whereas this is more kind of like hanging in a toehole in a jungle where no one's really getting anywhere. And it's, it's, the whole thing seems very futile and just grinding everyone down. That's not to say that the film isn't of a certain quality. Well, you, what you have to do is admire Robert Aldrich's ambition for the film to set the film, to set the film, which is effectively a British perspective film in the South Pacific with a very localized mission and task, I think is Big risk. <laughs> big yeah. risk for a film which had a budget of about seven million US dollars, which would have been something similar to the Dirty Dozen, and at the time would have been a very expensive film to make. Yeah, I'm surprised <laughs> studios signed it off. To be honest, I'm sure they just yeah. they was thinking too carefully about it. And thought he's clearly got another dirty dozen in his hands. Let's let's follow the uh, the success, and yeah, just yeah. turned out not to be that at all. But again, uh, kudos to Robert Aldrich for doing the movie because it's it yeah. is certainly not Dirty Dozen two. In fact, there was a Dirty Dozen 2 and it was rubbish. Yeah, and, and also the film seems to have had, it, it, it seems as though he has had quite a lot of creative control over the film as well, because, yeah. it, you know, you say there might, there might well have been production problems in how the film was made, and I think certainly there are parts in the film where, despite the significant budget, and it might be the limitations of the time, some of the editing, some of the directorial decisions left a little bit to de- desired in that context. But nevertheless, I got a sense that that was probably Robert Aldrich's vision. You know, it, it, even though it's a big studio film, I didn't I didn't feel, you know, it wasn't chest thumping. It wasn't it wasn't patriotic in any way, shape or form. And I, I feel like he probably got away with making the film he wanted to make. And the film he wanted to make was just not very popular. Even now, actually, I did a trawl around for anyone to have a nice word to say about Too Late the Hero, and no one has. No one's given it the look that Weekend at Crumbies is doing, and that's why we're here. So again, other themes, again, we talked about the anti-war theme. I noticed, again, one nice visual point is even Yamaguchi is kind of dragged down by everything, because when he makes his first broadcast, and he's wearing a pristine white shirt, and by the end of this final broadcast, it's all grubby and down to, even yeah. he is, is, is right in the mire with everybody. I think yeah, he comes yeah. up again with his his final words, almost literally his final words, um, uh, is when he's trying to entice the guys to surrender, saying, "Medals they give to dead heroes are made of earth. All they do is add weight to your coffin." That's a cracking line as well, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's, it's, really, yeah. yeah, it's one of the it's one of the many sort of anti-war messages again. So again, Yamaguchi, we generally because he's an authority figure and seems honourable, we're listening to him anyway as an audience. Hearn is generally right about things, and Hearn has a couple of good anti-war speeches. He has it at the start when he's telling everyone, why don't we all just go home, it would make a difference. And he has it at the end when he's telling Lawson, look, this doesn't, we just go home. Um, so the characters almost we'd listen to the most have anti-war messages in them. And they do, yeah, they do. And, and I think, I think the, the strongest commentary on that, as you've just, you've just highlighted, is, is from Yamaguchi, who is, and, and it's from the Japanese perspective almost. 
which again is unusual in a film like this to give that level of um authority i suppose in really nailing what the theme of the film is about to the ostensible enemy yeah. and i think that's a very deliberate decision to highlight that there is in this kind of situation a futility in thinking about uh, an antagonist and a protagonist that there 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 is there are only losers yeah yeah um i feel really depressed <laughs> I wanted to. There were a couple of things I really liked about the film that I wanted to raise yeah. as well, which which have a thematic process. They all link into the idea of the anti-war film as well, I guess, but they may be a little bit more specific in the context that they're told. Um, I think that there are a number of scenes in the film, which uh, and I've mentioned it in in the synopsis as well, which highlight. What I think actually, whether I'm reading this wrong or not, I don't know, but which I think highlight very specific acts of cowardice, and they are the main part the main act of cowardice i feel is and i think you had a slightly different reading of it but the main act of cowardice i had was lawson refusing to go with hornsby into the into the radio shack in the kind of encampment and that to me is that to me is a a, felt like a very strong act of cowardice whether whether it was actually born out of cowardice or not i suppose is is not the point but it was a it was a point which he had he made a decision which was not for the mission but was for his own self-servicement or his own petty argument as it were and that is the fulcrum um, i think that the whole film rests on is that moment it, yeah. it does yeah, yeah. It, it, it does yeah and you know even the title of the film too late the hero is it kind of harks back i think to that point yeah in the sense that the rest of the film is him trying to make up for that decision but the, the second point which which i see this is the michael kane hern character when he basically says oh you know we, we let's just leave this let's go into the jungle, hide out for a couple of days. Don't worry about the the, the mission anymore. Don't mind, you know, a raid's going to happen. People are going to die. It doesn't matter. No, nothing's going to change. And it's a very bleak statement. But I think that is also a self-service element of cowardice as well. Uh, maybe it's not cowardice in the traditional term. Well, he doesn't he doesn't run off. But what he's doing is trying to persuade someone that we need to think of ourselves here. And that's ultimately what cowardice is to a certain extent, I think. Um, There are those two scenes in particular that I think really stand out for me. But what's interesting about those two scenes, actually, I think, is that they are not, whilst they drive the plot to a certain degree, they are, they are, they are highlighted and then we move on from it. Cowardice is not treated in this film as a point at which we have negative views about those characters. Oh, that's a good unlike point, yeah. Unlike other films. Yes, um, yeah. So the, the cowardice of Lawson and the cowardice of Hearn are not character traits which we frown upon. And that, to me, is a really interesting point in the film, because in any other war film, the coward, or in any other traditional war film, I think the coward is the butt of the the hatred. It, it, he is the He is the cause of the problem. And in this film... The coward is central to how we see those characters in those situations. The only other, uh, well, uh, one other film I think deals with that kind of idea very strongly is Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory, um, yes. which well, it doesn't deal with cowardice necessarily, but there are decisions that are made by certain people that are very self-serving. And in the end, individuals have to pay the, the price for those decisions. And then the film then moves on to a kind of moral and ethical standpoint. And th- those those soldiers that, that have the kind of ramifications of the decisions are not brave. 
they fall apart. They are cowards in that in that context, but they are treated humanely and they are treated with respect. And I think within the context of this, Lawson makes a terrible decision. It is Lawson that causes the death of Hornsby, effectively. Yeah. You know, it, it, not, di- not directly, I guess, because it's the Japanese soldiers that cause the death of Hornsby. It's the war that causes the death of Hornsby. Yeah. It's just that Lawson's put in this position where whatever he does, effectively, we're all going to die anyway. And he decides not to do it. And Hornsby dies because of that. But I don't feel any less of Lawson because of that, I don't think. And Hearn wants to run off. He wants to run away. Don't feel any less. And I don't think the film judges that. And I think that's very interesting. I banged on a little bit there, but that feeds strongly into the moral argument of the film. Yeah, the fact that, again, you're right, cowardice is not seen as a fatal condition. Because normally, in a moral ensemble film, the coward would either run off or abandon someone, would very quickly come a cropper. And that would be the film's judgment on, that's why you don't run. Um, yeah. And I, think yeah, of, be, I can think of even yeah, many good films and kind of morally interesting films that do that that common trope of this. You, know, you can do anything, but if you're a coward, death will follow because that's you know, that's what yeah. cowards deserve. Yeah, and the, the coward is the low of the low. You can be you can be a um, a Campbell, you know, a, a private Campbell type character. Yeah. But in the end, you have redemption if you prove to be brave. Yeah. You could be a murderer, a rapist, a thief, but if you're brave, you're all right. Thumbs up. Or you could be you could be a you could be a, a saint, um, you know, a, a kindly individual. But if you're a coward, that's it. You're yeah. the lowest of the low. Which is interesting, actually, because I'm thinking of a couple of films now. The Dirty Dozen. You're responsible for all those crimes, and I don't think yeah. any one of them funks it. They all get their machine guns and kill Germans, and therefore they're all seen as heroes. And yeah. I do remember again Saving Private Ryan when uh, the young soldier. Um, who basically can't face battle, he kind of um, he goes into a, a crouch in the middle of the battle scene, is certainly portrayed in a very negative light, as in he's if he'd only gone up the stairs he could have saved his friend's life and therefore he is a yeah. bad person. When in fact he is yeah. he's mentally frozen by a shock or something he can't cope with. But it's never he shown is, that. It's shown is. as um what a rotter. Or what a but it's shown as a weakness. It's yeah. shown as a weakness. It, you know, God forbid we ever find ourselves in a situation where we have to make those kinds of decisions. I don't think that I would be I don't think that I would be confident in my own sense of well-being to be able to say for sure what i would do given what given what these people had seen and been through yeah i think cowardice is probably the natural reaction to almost everything that goes on in war yeah i'm always constantly amazed that that people do otherwise you know when when you're talking about hand-to-hand combat with heavy industrial machinery Mm. you're you know you've got to be very brave to be able to deal with that and i think i think the film represents that kind of ambiguity between what what actually is bravery and what is cowardice quite well, because whatever anyone says, the fact that they actually, you know, the fact that they went across the field in the first place into the jungle, they're more brave than I will ever be in my life. (laughs) Although I think it's interesting. I was pondering on basically Lawson's state of mind post Hornsby, because the way I read his, his portrayal there was that he's pretty much spending the latter half of the film with Hornsby's dead eyes right in front of his face. He's still in a state of shock um, combined with self-preservation that he's he's reasonably good at. Um, But also I think, in, at some level, Lawson can't conceive of his own death. He, 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 um, I think he sees himself, I guess as we all do, as the protagonist of our own story. So, you know, he thinks, you know, he's, he's in this terrible situation and he'll come through and he'll have a horrible memory and horrible thing. He doesn't think he's the one that will die. Because he keeps talking about, when, he, when he's getting her to, to, do, to, to push along, he's saying, there's two of us, one of us will make it. I'm sure in his mind he's thinking, I'm the one that will make it. It'll be yes. sad if Hearn dies, 
you know, because it can, yeah. you know we kind of got a camaraderie now, but it won't. It's not fifty-fifty. I will make it because you know I'm I'm the character. I, you know, obviously he sees yeah. I'm you know I was I'm I'm the I've been brought here for the reason. Yeah, two 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 days ago I was going to run and leave. There's no way I can be dragged to this jungle and die. That's just silly. I won't die for a yeah, silly reason. Absurd. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and which is why I think again it's why he was the one that ended up dying. Any other thoughts on theme? I've spoken a little bit about the kind of the, the things that I liked about the film. I have, I do have some issues with the film as well. Okay. Um, I, I, I think that the film, the film does what it does very well, actually, in, in the main. And I think it, what it tries to get across, it does in an effective way. I was, it may be the timing of the film. It may be when it was made. Um, I felt that there was a, a, a certain abruptness to the direction and the editing of the film, particularly early on. It took me quite a long time to get into the the, the film itself. The, the setup of the film, when Lawson is on the beach and he, you know, he finds out about the mission that he has to go on in his journey to um, the, the, the... New Hebrides. Uh, the Hebrides, yeah, that's it, yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's all set up well and it's all, it's all fine and everything, but it, it, there was there were some instances where it felt a little bit rushed or it felt the direction was a bit lazy or lackadaisical. So it suddenly would cut to different scenes or it suddenly would fade out and fade in very quickly. And it took me out of what I was trying to understand a little bit more. And, you know, looking back on the start of the film from the vantage point of having finished the film, that the, they, they jar a little bit as well. And I understand why that I understand why it's done. I understand why Lawson at the start of the film is intended to be a bit of a, a cad a bit of a, a, a you know a, a, a rogue soldier i suppose he's you know he's a bit lazy he's a bit he's a bit of a um layabout i suppose and it does feed through into the rest of the film but i, I think it was just something i think it took me a long time to get into his character yeah. much more so than it took me to get into um hornsby's character who has far less screen time than lawson but i think is is a far more interesting and accessible character and that to me is a little bit of a problem given that lawson is the main protagonist in the film so yeah. lawson himself i didn't engage with i think as much as i would have liked or perhaps i wanted the film to be much more about hornsby who i think is a much more interesting character actually yeah one thing i'll jump in so on um, yeah um, is that actually i, I didn't mention this with the, the carry on the vietnam allegory Hornsby, when he's railing at Lawson for, for not taking part, gives him some lines saying, you could be some long-haired, conscientious objector for all I care, which to me is so anachronistic in the 1940s and could only be a Vietnam line. Um, Can only be. Yeah. yeah. And so I, and that was going to be my second point. I think that the, the allegories toward the Vietnam War are, are perhaps unnecessary and they are too blunt. And, and I think what, you, what ends up happening is that you get this, you get this anachronism between the the setting of the Second World War and the implications of what that means and the message, which is very much of the Vietnam War. And I think they kind of they clash a little bit in styles. Perhaps It doesn't necessarily mean that the message of the film changes because it's still an anti-war film, which is still quite bleak in that context. But I think it's a that can be a little bit heavy handed yeah. in that context. It doesn't really detract from the quality of the film per se, but it took me away from really enjoying the films, maybe the wrong word, but I think there's a point at which you can enjoy this. It is still quite a, it is, it is still an adventure film as well. There are, there are moments of action and adventure in the film. Yeah. And I felt I was back a little bit. The third thing is, I think it's possibly a little bit too long as well. Yeah. I think you could, you could shave 15, 20 minutes off the film and it, be a tighter, punchier, and perhaps more impactful film as a consequence of that. It is still very impactful, but there's some some elements of it there which I think would work differently. The final thing I want to say is 
it's filmed in the Philippines. So the Philippines acts as a, um, a kind of surrogate for Japan or, or the Hebrides, wherever it was meant to have been filmed. And um, it's, it remains to this day the most expensive film ever made in the Philippines. <laughs> And uh, it's, it's interesting because obviously what had happened is um, I don't know, Robert Aldrich or ABC, the studio that made it, had some arrangement with the president or the powers that be in the Philippines. Because at the start of the film, it's huge. The, you know, the part of the credits is we would like to thank the wonderful people of the Philippines for allowing us to set foot in their beautiful country. You think it's a Ferdinand Marcos production? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was a little bit. It's a little bit um, sycophantic, I guess, really. So yeah. I would imagine that the, uh, the the Philippines, the Philippine government, maybe gave them quite a lot of tax breaks or whatever. <laughs> or, or there was there was lots of money flowing about. I don't know. But, yeah. <laughs> and I'm wondering about what yeah what, what impact it's going to have on actual films now you know who's behind it because clearly you know the fact that Ferdinand Marcos was behind the film is not a good thing. Um, it's like the right. rumble in the jungle. It's like um, this was a, a nice boxing match that was set up by a dictator. <laughs> Yeah, I know it's true, isn't it? Um, but then you know you have to you have to separate the art from the artist, don't you? I, I think I think you're right when you say it. it's funny. Two hours again. There's a film that didn't bother me, but I normally I, yeah I do I do give it a close look at any film that goes beyond the two hour mark. Aldrich seems to favour that because I remember the Dirty Dozen. I mean I might check now. I'm sure that far exceeded um, two hours because I'm oh, seeing a, yeah, I think it, a very yeah, long it film because it's practically all training and then there's the mission to go through too. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's and the thing yeah, about the, the was two and a half, two hours forty. Oh, was it really? That's, That's Lord of the Rings length in 1967. <laughs> I didn't even have yeah. a film in those days. It's that still shorter than the new Infinity War film, though, which is about that's nearly three hours, isn't it? No, no, no. It's it's still brisk. Marvel films are not notoriously long. Um, if you don't stay for the end of the credits, it's the uh, the DC ones that have a reputation of being bloated. It's only because really? there's all the Marvel films. They seem like a lot. Because if you watch them back to back, it would take you 41 hours. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't think I haven't planned my retirement. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, yeah. oh, blimey. I didn't necessarily feel that it was too long. I just It was padded out a little bit, I yeah. think. Maybe maybe that's what it was. But, you know, I, you know yeah. it was, I think for what, it, for what it was intended to do, it, it got enough across, yeah. I think. For... I'll, take, I'll, take, I'll take up a couple of points. Firstly, you said it's a good action film. And, again, looking at now without my weekend at Crombie Visor, it actually is. There's, there's two levels you can watch the film, and one is just Michael Caine has fun in the jungle. You might be left thinking, that was a bit weird. But um, I think yeah. it, it's, a, um, it's helpful to plumb a bit deeper into this film to actually know what it's, what's going on there. The other, so. yeah, the other about the accessibility of Lawson, I think you're right. I think it's interesting. He is, again, he is at one point inscrutable, at the point more of a cipher. He is, he is the, yeah. the um, there's a couple of interesting things. I was trying to, I was trying to work out, again, his motivations. Why I said he was, I thought he was in shock and he was in, you know, he was in denial for a lot of the movie, um, which I think he is. And they, they chose, whether Aldrich chose or not, or had it forced on him, that kind of very, um, all-American actor. He, he is, you can imagine him playing the hero role because that's what he looks yeah. like. That's, that's how he portrays. Yeah. And I was just getting trying to work it out because this this is set in the spring of 42, which means America has been at war for less than three, three or four months. That is, again, unlike, say, the British who've been in the, the South, who've been there for years now, yeah. this is not a long time for him to get war-weary. Um, I imagine you know, no, it isn't, it's, it's not. Oh, you're right. It isn't. And it's again. So, and are we saying that you know he because he's not a young man and he knows Japanese when he went in. So did he join in like peacetime, thinking he's got himself a cushy job just operating a radio? Yeah. And this war sprung on him, and that's when he becomes jaded. Because it seems a very short space of time with which to become jaded with the war, unless he's just a you know perpetual skyver that came in like that. It yeah, would seem more you're natural. Right, you're right. Yeah. 
his his character arc then is is inter- he's almost his off screen character arc is is yeah I can't quite pin him down. Yeah, you have to do the maths on it because it's 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 not like this is say forty four and he's seen the Pacific Theatre, which you'd imagine it would would destroy anybody. He, he well, think there's no reason. There's no reason for. Well, maybe there is a reason, but I can't think of a massive reason as to the reason why they wouldn't have set it later. I mean, why not set it late 1943? I think possibly because you'd get the British presence would be lessened because you know pretty much after the the, the Brits got chased out of Singapore, it became very much an American theatre. So maybe they need that mix. Um, yeah, exactly. Maybe they need it to be more on the on balance because you know once the American tide starts rolling, even though the individual campaigns are incredibly bloody. There, there's an there's inevitability to it, whereas actually now it's yeah. like every encounter counts. You know, this important this convoy gets through. Yeah. We don't know where the war will go. It's it's at the midpoint. But yes, yeah, so the, the, that got me thinking. But again, it's more kind of like looking at the backstory. In what we're presented, he does seem like a cipher. Again, it's funny that it's an American production and American director because you'd think more it's like a British production where they shipped uh, in yeah, a big name American yeah. star who they don't really know what to do with. They need, he get he's the American. He turns up in his aviators and he's classy. He's got the glib answer to everything. And he and you know, he doesn't make it back, and it seems more like a, a British movie when in fact it isn't. So it, you're right; it is you're right. The character actors, in many ways, you know more about them. You, you get more of a sense of say who yeah. um, certainly who Hornsby is, almost who Campbell is, than you do who Lawson oh, is. Yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 I think that that Lawson for me is, is one of the least the least inget the least interesting characters in the film, yeah. and that one of the least engaging characters in the film, and and yet he is ostensibly the main protagonist of the film. Now, again, that might be because you're not supposed to like him that much. And I don't think he is very likable. He's, he's quite likable at the start, I suppose, in that kind of cheeky way. But as but, the movie but, yeah, progresses... But he's, yeah. he's likable at the start, but then he's also being chewed out by you know Henry Fonda, who was put in there to be our character who we like, who calls him yeah. you know, a skyver and a coward and this kind of stuff. And yeah. then as as he's being driven to the New Hebrides and put on the plane, we hear some Americans all just talking about it saying, that bum ain't happy. That bum wouldn't be happy anywhere. And I think we're, it's yeah. meant to imply there's more to him than meets the eye, even though we we may not see it. Like he's, he's, I know he's a perpetually dissatisfied character, but he does just seem like a skyver and a gold bricker and someone who's, yeah. who's a perpetual sulk until he does something that, that tips the balance and then becomes driven to get home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but even driven to get home in quite a self-serving way. Yeah, I guess. yeah. I think again, um, I don't know if you called on that. The, yeah, my um, Hearn calls out Lawson saying, "You're not doing this to be the hero of the mission. Yeah. You're doing this because you're racked with guilt, and this is the only way you can see out of it." Yeah. Now, I appreciate it would be a very different film if it was more focused on Hornsby and Hearn and their relationship. It it, it wouldn't be an American film for a start, <laughs> but they they have a but they. I mean, it helps that they're both very good actors, Denim Elliott and Michael Caine, yeah. uh, Michael Caine at the time particularly, yeah. but Denim Elliott as well is very good in that role. And they, they have, they have a good chemistry. Yes. I think. Um, and you feel the sparks between them and it could still be a very effective anti-war film. And I think, I think actually that might show more how war churns men up because Hornsby is, if, as you say, he's not, he's not a bad person. He's just incompetent. Yeah. And in that situation, he's never going to win. He's got almost like the, the shortest straw of them all in the sense that he's doomed to fail. Yeah. He's doomed to die. But he's also doomed to not command the respect of his fellow soldiers. So in that regard, he's he's a very pathetic, but quite a sympathetic character yeah. because he's not inherently bad. Whereas my, the Michael Caine character, Hearn, is a cheeky Cockney chappy. So you kind of, I mean, apart from the fact that that can be quite irritating, I guess, <laughs> you intended to warm to him to a certain extent. He does command the respect of the 
the the soldiers, but he's equally doomed. Yeah. Um. And so therefore that interplay is quite interesting. I'd like to see more of that. Yeah, you talk about now had had Lawson died in the attack and Hornsby and Hearn been running back, that would have been a very interesting film to watch. Um, it would have been, especially been, especially they both be equally would have made it. To be honest, no, they're yeah. going to be both be equally driven to succeed, but not equally incompetent, perhaps. Yeah. In their I don't know. Uh, they don't yeah. have the magic power of speaking Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah. But at this point, Lawson does drive her over the, the last mile. He, you know, he, he pushes him to do it. Whether yeah, he could have saved his life by ducking off the trail and hiding, as he said he would. But yeah, it's, it's interesting how it, how it all wraps up, but, uh, but to the benefit of nobody. Again, it's, um, <laughs> pretty much no one comes out of the film, and the situation doesn't improve at all. It, it, it is, again, inherently wasteful and, and yeah, downbeat movie. <laughs> That ends with a rousing fanfare. The music ends up with a swell. It's just so, it it's so interesting. It's, it's, so, it, it, it's the same with the flags. Yeah. It starts off with flags that become tattered, and at no point does the music. Well, the music does actually. When the flags become tattered, the music dips from its its, its rousing tune yeah, into, it into its bathos one. Yeah. And yeah, it, it's almost not allowing you to enjoy the movie as an action romp. <laughs> I'm again looking at the poster now, and it's you know it's a picture of the two heroes. And they they look tough. They, how the hell did this film get made? <laughs> How did it get made? It's mad, isn't it? When you think about it, all the things. How the hell did this film get made? Uh, Who bankrupted uh, this film? To a lot of money. <laughs> to the detriment of the studio. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, what were people thinking? There you but, go. you know, that's what Weekend of Crumbies is all about. That's what Weekend of Crumbies is about. We dredged it up and we took a look at it. Um, <laughs> um, well, we, we, we pick on a minor character. Do you, have, do you have a minor character in mind you'd like to, to, to shine the light on before we, uh, we drop out? Well, I was. I think we've talked about Yamaguchi quite a lot. Um, I wouldn't say he's not necessarily a minor character, but he, he's 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 subordinate in the context of the the, the film, I guess, really. But you know, he, I think we've we've covered him. What, what about you? I'm picking Corporal McLean. Um, yeah, okay. Played, right. played by Lance Percival, who was a British comedian. I think he was on Carry On Cruising. It's probably his only other major oh, film role. You were trying has, to place him. He has such a distinctive face. Yes. But I couldn't remember what films I'd seen him in. Yeah, he, he was put on the Scots accents. That would that would screen it. But yeah. again, but McLean, I thought was interesting to look at, basically because I think he's he's kind of Hearn without Hearn's um, spirit, because he's yeah. he's kind of he's shown to be pally with Hearn. He's competent enough in the jungle. He's a corporal. He can automate around. Um, he starts to lose his nerve when anything goes astray, and kind of is a bit more keen to be told. Let's surrender. He won't take the initiative himself, but if we're going to surrender, he's not too anti the idea. And when he gets captured, he's he's kind of downbeat and apologetic. I think McLean is probably who most of us are, even though we'd like to think we'd be Hearn. Um, we'd be kind of we'd, we'd put in a shift and we'd and we'd do okay. But when crossing over the shelf, we'd just get captured and <laughs> be uh, yeah. left pleading over the tannoy. Um, but again, I thought it's again it's another character actor. Again, there's. Three or four of just the patrol are portrayed so well by some really strong character people. You yeah. get a sense, and I'm thinking about other ensembles where that's worked. Say, Aliens was another example of get some really good strong yeah. actors in the ensemble, and the film is lifted. Yeah. You do. I was recently saw yeah, The Edge of Tomorrow. Um, is that called The Edge of Tomorrow? No, it's yeah. the, the Day After Tomorrow. Um, the Tom Cruise one, where he is also part of a military ensemble, and I just thought the oh, cast. Oh, Edge of Tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. The casting yeah, it's was so. You care about the characters. Yeah, but the casting of the death tomorrow of he's kind of like with his crew that go down on the beachhead. They're so, yeah. um, with respect, them badly cast. There's nothing in any of them that you need to remember or to latch onto. That I, I couldn't, yeah, right. I couldn't yeah. place any of them. And I think that makes a difference. You need a big star, but if you're doing an ensemble piece, you need some really strong people around them. Yeah. And I think that lifts it. Yeah. 
Yes, even if that guy was just the chef from Carry On Cruising, he puts, <laughs> he, he's recognisable, he's, he's strong enough it, it, when he's on the scene to think, oh, he's that guy. And so you don't need to spend all your time thinking, was he the guy that was friends with that guy that borrowed the cigarettes off that guy? You know, oh, he's the mad one. He's the evil one. Yeah. He's, the, he's the, the stoic one, and then you're there. And but I, that's one of the strengths of the film. The, the ensemble cast is, yeah. does a sterling job. Right. Are we, uh, have we, have we deep dove enough into this now? Well, as the clock ticks towards midnight, (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think the, I don't think the Mariana Trent is as deep as how deep we've dived too late the hero. Um, so I think it's, I think it's about time that we gave the scores. It's time to give it our scores and to find out what film we'll be looking at next month. Welcome back. It's that time again. We can we're put still it, here. We're, we're we are still, still here. here. We're still here. We can put it off no longer. It is time to give the scores of Floating Crombie Heads for Too Late the Hero. As it was my pick, I believe tradition decrates that I must uh, open the kimono first. <laughs> <laughs> that was an unfortunate choice of phrase. I'll go straight to it. Again, I, I liked the film when I first saw it. I When I revisited it, I liked it for a whole different amount of reasons. I would... Gladly rewatch and have indeed rewatched this film more than I would many other films of its time or of its of, of World War Two movies. This would be the one I'd go to. This would be I'd recommend people watch. Um, and I don't doubt Lawson is a problem. I think the character and the portrayal of him is an issue. I wouldn't disagree with the cutting, although I personally find the editing a bit the jarring helped with the jarring effect of the movie, and it does mm. run a bit long. But for all that, I can think in good conscience I'm giving it five. Floating Crombie Heads. Oh, oh, wow! My first five. five I think heads. I just think it's a film I have enjoyed revisiting. Yeah. It, to me, it's worth five Floating Crombie Heads. It doesn't make it a perfect film, but five doesn't mean perfect. It just means it's a very good film that's worth revisiting. I think five never means perfect. Five just means it's a film that you've watched at that particular point in time and enjoyed it thoroughly. Indeed. It's now your turn. What would you give it? Well, I, I have never heard of Too Late the Hero. When you when you uh, uh, um, put it forward as, as the film for for this month, I ne- never heard of it, um, didn't know anything about it, and came into the film cold as well actually. So I, I didn't really look into the kind of backstory of the film or, or what it was about until I actually watched it. Other than knowing that it was a war film um, or a, a film set in the Second World War, I didn't really know what what the kind of the, the process was about, and it surprised me. Um, it surprised me at how thoughtful the film was in the context of the themes that it was trying to deliver. It surprised me at how bleak and dark the film's messages were. Um, but it also surprised me at how coherent the film held together as a consequence of, of that as well. And I, I thought that as a, as a, as a film that I'd never heard of, you know, I, I, I watch a lot of films and I, I know about a lot of films. Having not heard about it, I probably came into it with, quite low expectations actually if i'm honest and i was pleasantly surprised at how much i got out of the film i wouldn't say i enjoyed it because i don't think it's a film that you do enjoy necessarily but i think it certainly has virtues and it is certainly a quality film as a result of that i do think it's too long and i do think that the one one of the two main protagonists the lawson character is not engaging enough for me to really pinpoint exactly how i felt about the film in its broader context, I suppose. And I'm I'm still agog at, at the fact that a film like Too Late the Hero was made at a cost of nearly seven million US dollars. <laughs> but but nevertheless, um I enjoyed it. Um it's not a perfect film and it has its flaws. Because of that I'm going to give it 
three disembodied floating crombie heads. Three crombie and heads. Three crombie heads. I think there's a, it has a lot going for it. Um, but I think that there are just some, there are some kind of thematic decisions that were made in the film which pull it back a little bit from me. I think that's fair. Very well, we have an aggregate score. It's It's not a one. (laughs) It's not a one. It's not a one. No, no, I I think that's entirely fair. That's a. Again, if we were allowed half marks, I probably would have given it three and a half. Yeah, we're not. But we're not. We, uh, but we have given it a score now of eight out of ten. So I think that that's solid enough for me. I was, I was thinking, is this a five? I was watching it. I was torn. Is a five or a four? But I just. A, a movie that you is. Gotta go with it. I gotta go with it. A movie that basically, to me, wears the clothes of so many World War Two action movies that I've seen. You know, the the Seahawks yeah. and the Sea Wolves yeah. and and Operation Crossbow and that kind of stuff. But leaves you with a completely different reaction and a lot more to think about. With some very strong performances, disregarding a couple of them, I thought I, I couldn't not give it five. Five is my recommendation. Three, I think, is a fair score. Eight, I think, is probably about right. Yeah, well, I think it, it was. Um, I think that's the joint joint second highest score we've given with Quigley Down Under, I believe. Or no, Quigley was seven, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it's it's the second. It's, it's Blow Runaway Train, which second. I would say is about right. So, would you like to announce which one we'll be watching for episode six? I I would. So we have. Um, I, I was when I was watching too late here. Actually, it was when it had just finished. Um, I was watching. I, I was thinking about what we might want to raise up in um weekend at Crombie 6 and it, it occurred to me that um, perhaps with phantom of the paradise as the exception <laughs> although i think it's still probably well i think i think it still probably does fall within the 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 the, the boundaries of my decision making for the next film as well certainly with too late the hero certainly with runaway train and to a large extent with quigley down under they are very male dominated and male oriented films um, Too Late the Hero doesn't really have any female characters in it. Um, Runaway Train has one female character in it and one very minor character um, who, who's in a who's in the kind of depot station who doesn't really have any kind of speaking role. Yeah. Quigley Down Under does have a strong female sidekick, but she certainly isn't the driving force of the film. Well, she's the heart of the film, but not the driving force of the film. Yeah. Phantom the Paradise has a female character, but she's she I wouldn't say she is the main driver of the film as well and Santa Claus the movie's about Santa Claus so you know, he's not a woman so I thought I wanted to redress the balance a little bit and, and choose a film that was that had a female protagonist at the very centre of the film that was driven by her very good so as a consequence of that the film that I have chosen is a 2000 uh, based in oh, sorry it's made in 2000 so it's okay. quite a modern film okay um, and it's called Dancer in the Dark and it stars Bjork um <sighs> And it's uh, directed by Lars von Trier, who is a bit of an enfant terrible of the um, uh, kind of Danish um, Scandinavian style of filmmaking called dogma filmmaking. Um, it's a musical as well. So despite protesting that I dislike musicals profoundly, two of my three choices have indeed been musicals. But I, ch- I wanted to choose it because I'm a big fan of Lars von Trier. Well, actually, I'm not necessarily a big fan of Lars von Trier, but I appreciate his I appreciate the films he makes can be quite divisive, shall we say. Sorry, I'll, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll let you finish. I'm currently doubled up with laughter. <laughs> because if someone was to ask me what's the most James Evans film you could pick, it would be Dancer in the Dark by Lars von Trier, the enfant terrible of Danish cinema featuring Bjork. <laughs> Starring Bjork. <laughs> And if that film didn't exist, you'd invent it because. <laughs> oh, I would. So 
I can. I sorry, can sorry. You're, you're, no, no. I'm, I, I am looking forward to this. Um, I, I, I've heard of Bjork. I indeed own one of her albums, and, uh, and I have heard of Dancer in the Dark. Um, and oh, I've you heard, have. Oh, good. And good. I've heard of Lars von Trier. I know nothing about it. Does it feature a World War Two mission on a Japanese island? No, I don't think it does. Okay, um, well, I'll be pleasantly surprised if it does. I, I've never seen it before. <laughs> I should, I should add as well. I've okay, never cool. seen it. It's a Lars von Trier film that I haven't seen, and so therefore I'm keen to give it the weekend at Quimby's, um uh, attention. Well, I'm very glad you picked this. I'm glad you picked a new direction. I, uh, I've been looking at my list of films, and they're, they're all the kind of films that uh, that teenage me watched, and I'm afraid I didn't, yeah. didn't stray into Lars von Trier back then. But this is good. <laughs> this is this is broad. I'm, I look forward to, to Dancer in the Dark. But with that, I think that concludes our episode. Um well, as, as the sun rises over swaddling coat, <laughs> uh, and as the as as the 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 residents leave their houses in their dressing gowns to get another bottle of wine for Saturday, <laughs> uh, I wish you evening all, and we hope that you enjoy your weekend at Crombie's. Well, when you when you hung up, then I was asked to rate the quality of that call out of five. Are they, yeah, are they asking me to rate the quality of our conversation? Because it's going to be five out of five here. every time. <laughs>